And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. The name's Bond. James Bond. James Bond. He's a double O and a wild one. Charming, sophisticated secret agent. Who is also licensed to kill? You noticed. special event. Stirred, not shaken, our comprehensive look at the James Bond series features me, Agent Andrew Leyland, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Joining me tonight for this very special episode, a man who can't get enough pussy galore, Mr. Scott H. Gardner. I just want to be called Blofeld, or actually Blowhard would probably be more more uh, <laughs> apt in my... Uh, in my... That'd do nicely. Uh, <laughs> secondly, we have a man with plenty of tool, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Yeah, see to Mr. Bond. See that some harm comes to him. <laughs> and last, but by no means least, a man that we fully expect to talk, Mr. Paul Spatero. I prefer you say Spatero. Paul Spatero. Very <laughs> uh, <laughs> good. I knew somebody was going to do that. I just didn't know who it would be. <laughs> yeah, well, if you're looking for something unoriginal, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to get uh, Chris to mock up a nice photo uh, for this, aren't we? Yeah, oh, that would be cool. Well, I want to know who's going to be George Lazenby in the, uh, in the kilt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, the other fella. <laughs> uh, the theme for tonight, obviously, is the James Bond films. We're going to look at each specific era. Connery, Lazenby, Connery again, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and if we get time and don't fall asleep, Mr. Daniel Craig. First off, we just want to start off with everyone's origin story for the James Bond meetup. Who wants to go first? Well, mine's oh. probably the most boring, so I should probably okay. go first. <laughs> go ahead, then, Luke. That was no, that... <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there? Zing! Yeah. Well, wow. oh, me. Uh, well, you know, I'm... I'm... In my house, I was the youngest of four. I had two older brothers. And when I was, I guess, nine, my two older brothers took me to see Diamonds Are Forever. And from that moment on, I was hooked. 
right after that, they took me to a double feature to see Thunderball and You Only Live Twice. And the very first movie I ever saw with my friends that I just went with my friends on my own was Live and Let Die, which I think we saw four times in the movie theater. So I've been a James Bond fanatic ever since then. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much my origin story because I've been hooked and I don't think there's been one movie that I haven't seen right away when it came out. Okay. Right. Luke? Oh, I'll go next. My, mine's a little more involved. Uh, as, as seems to be the case on every Two True Freak show I'm on, I'm the youngest one here. So uh, the first James Bond... Oh. I'm just saying is all. I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a simple fact. The, uh, the first James Bond film that I remember hearing about and being aware of is The Living Daylights. In 1987, I remember oh seeing God. all the. I remember <laughs> seeing in uh, in the. Uh, I forget the name of the paper. It's, it was the Gannett Suburban Paper for where I grew up in New York. Um, in the you know they used to have the print ads of all the movies in the lifestyle section where they have all the movie times, and I remember just a full page, you know, one half of the broadsheet of the one sheet to the Living Daylights, you know, with with Dalton pointing the gun at us and we're looking through. Um, uh, Miriam Diabo's leg at him and I was like wow that looks really cool and my dad was a James Bond fan and I was you know I remember at one point we were going to see it and it it didn't work out and so um, you know we we, my dad had my dad was an early VHS adopter so we had the the six Connery films on VHS he goes you know sits down and says okay we're going to watch some real James Bond as far as my dad concerned that was the only six James Bond films that existed were the six (laughs) Connery ones so I remember watching Dr. No was the first James Bond film I saw, and I freaking loved it. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And then we watched, you know, uh, For Much With Love, and then Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, and Diamonds Are Forever. And I really, really enjoyed them. And um, about this time is when, uh, you know, TBS started showing, they used to do, uh, it, it started out as 14 days of 007, then it became 16 days of 007, where they would show two Bond movies every night in primetime. And that was where I saw a lot of the later ones. And uh, at the same time, I found um, my dad had all of the paperbacks, almost all the paperbacks of the Fleming novels. And, you know, so it just became this, this whirlwind of, uh, of women and martinis and violence. As uh, I got, I was watching the movies and I was reading the books and I was checking out the Raymond Benson books from the library. And it was just this big snowball effect. And um, it's just gone from there. And I've been a Bond fan ever since. Very good. Just, just to say, just real quick, the first one I saw in the theater was actually Goldeneye. So, oh, God. <laughs> can we can we lose him from the car? Yeah, really? <laughs> what is, Luke, how old are you? Eight? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, Scott, do you want to go next? 33. <laughs> I, I can go next. I My story is very nonspecific because Bond to me is kind of like comic books where I just don't I don't really remember a time when when Bond wasn't around um I know I saw one see to me Bond for me personally started with with Roger Moore and it wasn't until much later that that I discovered there had been a Bond prior to Roger Moore I mean it's just you know my age and what was out at the time and everything I remember seeing one with my dad at the at one of the drive-ins and it, it had to be it had to be, I'm pretty sure, Man with the Golden Gun. But it was it was one of the early Roger Moore ones. So growing up, it, you know, Roger Moore was Bond and everything. 
Um, it occurs to me that I've actually seen precious few of them at the movies, whether it was the drive-in or the, the theater, although I do remember specifically when I was old enough to go like with buddies to the movies. I know that I saw um, Octopussy and uh, and specifically View to a Kill. I remember seeing View to a Kill. I know I went with uh, with Randy, maybe Chris Honeywell too, I can't remember, but I know I saw View to a Kill in the theater. And uh, beyond that, I think Quantum of Solace is probably the next one I've seen actually in the theater. Most of them I just caught, you know, when they came along later on uh, on video or, you know, as a kid when they would play on TV or HBO or something like that. But uh, was never really, I mean, I always enjoyed Bond, but to me, Bond was always, you know, the Bond films were always very much, very similar to Peter Sellers' Pink Panther films, where... I couldn't, you know, I loved him. I enjoyed him, but I couldn't tell you what scene happened in what movie. They were all just a blur of, you know, they might as well all be the same movie because I, I couldn't differentiate them. It really wasn't until later when I actually was working in video and they started to be released on VHS tape to buy at a fairly cheap price and people would come in specifically looking for specific Bond films that I really made it a mission to, for one, to see all of them. You know, I, I actually made it a mission to watch them all in chronological release order. And then I got meticulous about keeping them in that order, you know, in our James Bond section in the video store and stuff like that. And then I, that's when I kind of got sucked in and became an actual fan. And that would be right around the time of uh, when, when Dalton was Bond, you know, with, uh, with Living Daylights and License to Kill. That's kind of when I became a Bond fan. I really liked his interpretation. I thought he was a little more serious. But, of course, he was coming right on the hills of, uh, of Roger Moore. So, you know, just about anybody would seem a little more serious on the job than, uh, than Roger yeah. Moore was there towards the end. But that's, yeah. that's pretty much my origin story with Bond. Uh, well, mine's moderately similar. Uh, growing up in England in the 70s and 80s, the films are very much just a fabric of our culture. They're on heavy rotation on TV. Just last night, Goldeneye was on, and Saturday afternoon, Octopussy was on. And if you channel surfing with the proliferation now of movie channels, you're guaranteed you will find a Bond film somewhere. The first one I saw, because of getting like Scott, the age I grew up, Connery was on TV while Roger Moore was in the cinemas. So the first one I saw was Goldfinger. Growing up, before we had cable TV and such, the Bond films were always events and they were always on over holidays like Christmas days and Boxing Days and Bank Holidays. So I first saw Goldfinger and followed by Diamonds Are Forever were the first two I saw. I remember Spy Who Loved Me being a big deal the first time it got shown on TV, back when movie premieres were still big on video, on TV, you know, before the advent of video kind of meant that movies don't get shown on proper TV anymore. Certainly over here they don't. They're all relegated to uh, the main, the other channels or late nights instead of being on prime time. I read a couple of the Ian Fleming novels in high school, but I'm only just working through all of them now. I'm just getting up to For Your Eyes Only, which is the one after Goldfinger. Uh, like Scott, as a kid, I probably couldn't have told you which bits were from work because it was when it was on, you left it on. And so you remembered bits, but you couldn't tell what movies they were. When they started coming out on VHS, that's when I sat down and watched them all from beginning to end. And then there was a, a quite a famous season in about 95 where ITV bought them all again, all the pristine new widescreen prints and all of that stuff. And they showed every one, one a week, on a Wednesday evening from 8 o'clock. And I watched them all again over that period. And it was kind of like one of those things where I fell in love with it again. 
having kind of drifted away a bit as a teenager. The first one I saw at the cinema was For Your Eyes Only with Roger Moore, and that's my origin story. <laughs> what I'm thinking now uh, is just to throw out who's your favorite Bond and who's your favorite, which is your favorite Bond movie? Oh, well, you, you came up with a question, Paul. Do you want to go take that first? Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's no question in my mind at all. It's a very easy one for me. Sean Connery and Goldfinger. The classics? You've gone for the two classic ones. Why? Why those two? Well, for me, like I said, when I first started watching Bond, Sean Connery was James Bond. He was the, the first three movies I saw in the movie theater were Sean Connery movies. And, uh, I, I, you know, at that age, one of my, my things was I had a hand-me-down toy of the uh, Goldfinger car. Uh, from one of my brothers, which was just the coolest thing. It had the bullet shield that came up, and, you know, it was probably probably like the, the Corgi models. Yeah, I had the, the Dinky Corgi thing, yeah. And, uh, I, you know, like you said, went back then, before the advent of uh, video, uh, when they'd show them on TV, it was an event. I remember back in the days when, you know, each year, at least here in, in the United States, uh, in, in September, the TV Guide would have the big full preview issue, and one of the things they'd list in there was all the movies that they were going to show this year, you know, premiering. And the James Bond movies were always big on that, that, you know, this year they're going to finally show this on TV or that on TV. And I remember when they showed Goldfinger on TV, my parents, you know, they had taken, I think, my, my brothers to see it in the movies when they were younger. And they knew that I was going to love it. And they, they were like, you know, get ready, be ready to watch this tonight. And I was just hooked from that moment and surprisingly i don't think that movie has aged poorly in the slightest i think it's held up really really well uh it, it's just everything about it that's when bond developed not the silliness that he did under more but a little bit more of the whimsy with the gadgets and all of that because in dr no one from russia with love they didn't really go that far afield with the things other than you know rosa klebs uh, pointed shoes and stuff uh but but in Goldfinger they went nuts with the car and everything and the laser and I, I just loved it. Who's your favorite, Luke? Well, I'm gonna go probably as as far afield from what Paul just said as is humanly possible <laughs> to be on the same podcast because uh, a friend of mine who is uh, on a on another podcast um, uh, he put out a thing on on G Plus and Twitter and, and on our Google group of. Uh, you know, who's your favorite Bond? Just in general, you know, pick one, just a straw poll. Who is it? And I thought long and hard about this because I'm I'm not a real savage critic. Anyone who listens to, to any of my shows know that I can find something to like about just about anything that I watch. It's rare that I really dislike something. And especially if it's something I'm a fan of, like James Bond, I have a hard time really criticizing it because I, I enjoy it. I mean, I can look at it critically, but I have a hard time really tearing it apart. So I really sat down and thought about it, and I said, well, who is my favorite James Bond that's not you know, from the films? And I finally had to go with Sir Roger Moore, just because I love pretty much every movie he made. I love all of them. They're all so much fun for me to watch. And, it, it you know, a lot since those were films I discovered on, you know, on my own, unlike, you know, watching the Connery ones with my, my dad and my brother or, you know, something like that, it was, I was seeking them out, I was finding them, and I was... You know, reading about him, and I was watching him, so it was kind of a more personal thing to me. Now, my favorite James Bond film is *A View to a Kill*, and I'll tell you why it's *A View to a Kill*. Like I said earlier, when I used to watch all the more films, I was introduced to, to every one of them on TBS. And back in the day, TBS um, 
their programs used to start at either 5 after the hour or 5 after bottom of the hour. So it would be 10.05, or they'd always say 10.05, 9.05 Central. That's what they'd always say. And um, so what that meant is, you know, if you were watching something else and you flipped over to TBS, you'd catch the very end of it. And I remember, you know, it was one Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, and it was during 16 days of 007, and I flipped over to TBS. It was right at the top of the hour. So uh, I was going to see whatever was coming on after, right? I was going to see what was playing. And A View to a Kill was on. So it's the last five minutes of A View to a Kill. And so it's Bond hanging off of the blimp, you know, crashing into the Golden Gate Bridge, the fight with Zorin on the bridge, you know, which is which I freaking love. The the the, the John Barry music in that scene. Yes. The you know the, the death of Zorin, and then you get the little gag in the shower, and then you get the awesome Duran Duran song on the end credits. And I had never I had never seen A View to a Kill. I'd never even heard of it because at this point the only book I had on James Bond was written in 1980. So it ends with. Uh, Moonraker and talks a little bit about the pre-production of Your Eyes Only. The only soundtrack album I had was released in 1983, so the last song was All Time High from Octopussy. So I, and, and I knew about Living Daylights, I knew about Octopussy, but there was that gap. I didn't know A View to a Kill was even around. So I was racking my brain, what is this? This is really cool. I said, it's, it's, Sir, it's Sir Roger. And I said, that's Christopher Walken. And I said, and that looks like Tanya Roberts, but I'm like, what movie is this? And so you got to wait to the end when, you know, they sing the final lyric. It's, you know, when all we see is a view to a kill. It goes, so I ran over, grabbed, you know, the, the Leonard Malton movie guy that sat next to my dad's TV forever. And now I have one sitting next to my TV <laughs> and flipped over to a view to a kill. And I'm like, and I was like, wow, okay, that, I got to I got to find this. So I ended up tracking it down. That was the first VHS tape I ever bought with my own money as a freshman in high school. And I remember uh, buying it at Saturday matinee at the Jefferson Valley Mall. Anyone from Westchester or Putnam County, New York will get that uh, <laughs> if you're listening. And I remember buying it at the Saturday matinee and driving back, or riding back, because I, I was 14, so I didn't have a driver's license, riding back home, very carefully opening the box and throwing it in the VCR and just sitting enthralled with it. I just loved it. I, I loved, you know, Christopher Walken and Grace Jones and just enjoyed the living hell out of that movie. I can recite it at pretty much at this point. But I really, really dug that. I know a lot of people hate it for whatever reason. I think it's one of Sir Roger's best performances, and I just think it's a... It, it's every bit of that formula is like clockwork. That movie just goes and goes and goes. It doesn't have any, you know, it doesn't have any weird tangents in it, I don't think. It just moves along very smoothly. Everything's very entertaining, and it's got a great cast. So I've always, you know, I've come to that, that conclusion like I said, I, I was telling you guys before I came out, I bought the soundtrack to A View to a Kill a couple of weeks ago on LP, and I don't have a turntable to play it on. So that just goes to show what a fan <laughs> of A View to a Kill I am. We'll, we'll discuss more about A View to a Kill, I think, when Roger Moore, we start on the Roger Moore section. I think we'll have some interesting talk about that one. Uh, Scott? This is a really tough one for me. Um, my my favorite Bond is, is easy. Um, it's hands down Timothy Dalton. Um, for a number of different reasons. I know that's an unpopular opinion. I know most people are like, Ugh, and they, they put him in pretty much the same realm as uh, as George Lazenby, who's you know basically forgotten because he only did, you know, in, in Dalton's case, he only did just the two movies. In Lazenby's case, he only did just the one. Um, well, Dalton, but- Dalton, sorry to interrupt, Dalton has been reappraised um, quite successfully in recent years. So- that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I always thought that he got... 
a, a bum rap as Bond because I, I I liked that he was more serious. Uh, um, Scott, if I could just add one other bit to what you were saying, because I agree with you about Timothy Dalton. An interesting bit of to note is that, as you say, Dalton only got two movies. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, from a critical standpoint, it's your third film as James Bond that's generally your best. Hmm. The theory has been often posited that had Property of a Lady been had been made in 1991, and the series didn't go on hiatus following License to Kill, that Dalton would have been very successful because he was finally getting, you know, making the role his own by his third film. But, you know, alas, that didn't happen. So I would say that's definitely true with Bond and uh, with Bond, with Connery and with Moore. Uh, I don't know that that's true with Brosnan, though. No, uh, I agree with Paul. I don't think that's true with Brosnan. So, let, let's go continue. I mean, I will come clean about one thing, though. Is you know, I had said earlier that uh, that when I got into video, that I made it a point to see all the Bond movies. You know, I'm very proud of that. But that was up until License to Kill. Um, as soon as they announced Pierce Brosnan taking over the role from Dalton. Um, I quit the the franchise cold turkey for two reasons. For one, I just I was enamored of of Timothy Dalton. I thought he was a uh, fantastic Bond. I loved both of his movies. Um, but the other big reason being, I freaking hate Pierce Brosnan. I can't stand him. Uh. And I thought you could not have made a worse choice for Bond. So I've actually not. Those are the only ones I haven't seen are the Brosnan ones, and that's just purely out of spite. I absolutely refuse to watch them. And I hadn't, I didn't come back until um, Daniel Craig came on board. Um, by the way, I love his, his movies are just fantastic. He really blew me away. Anyway, um, the hard decision for me is choosing between the films as far as which film do I like best. Um, it's funny that when I was a kid, if you asked me that question, my, my answer was always the same. It was live and let die. And I would always cite the scene where there's a broken bridge and it's it's broken in such a manner that it's it's twisted on both sides of this. I don't know. It's like a river or something. And Bond backs up and he guns the car and he's he starts jumping the bridge and the car actually flips in the air as it jumps the bridge and matches up perfectly with the other broken section of the bridge and then drives off successfully. It's a great stunt. One of the best stunts in a James Bond movie. Here's bridge. It's two miles back. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? (laughs) I've never done that before. Neither have I, actually. That scene's actually not from that movie, and I was absolutely <laughs> mortified to find that out many, many years later after having all my life said that was my favorite one because of that scene. Uh, well, in, in your defense, Sheriff Pepper from Live and Let Die. <laughs> right, right, I know. Yeah, it was just a matter of I, I was confusing the two movies. Um, 
But, you know, hard-pressed to answer the question, I'd probably have to say Living Daylights. I've, I used to always say License to Kill because I'm always a fan of when there's a series of movies. I, I generally focus, focus or fixate on the, on the one movie in the series that deviates from formula, if there is one. And that, to me, is the one Bond movie, uh, up until recently, with like Quantum of Solace kind of does the same thing. But up until recently, there'd never really been a Bond movie that broke the formula. They were, they were all pretty much the same type of movie. You know, there's a big over-the-top villain. There's a big, you know, villain base. Bond's on the mission to, you know, do his, his you know, uh, gun-for-hire thing. And License to Kill wasn't that. It was purely a personal story. He was going after this son of a bitch that had, that had hurt his friend. And I liked that. I really focused on that. But the last time I watched that movie, it just didn't feel like it had held up as well as License to Kill. License to Kill, to me, is is top to bottom. It's just a fantastic Bond movie. It is formulaic, but at the same rate, I like the way it works within the formula. And, uh, and I, I think the writing's very strong. I love the gadgets in the movie. It hits all the beats as far as the things that you expect a Bond movie to do. And uh, I think Dalton is just great in that movie. He's very sincere. And most important for me, it's got a killer soundtrack. I love the soundtrack for that movie. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to give it to Living Daylights. Scott, just, you know, you're absolutely right about the soundtrack. I said I, I made about a two-and-a-half-hour drive. We were visiting some friends this weekend, so I made the drive back today. And uh, all in my iPad, where has everybody gone from the living Yes. And, and what I love about that score is that, you know, there are, you know, Barry always incorporates the theme song into his, into his soundtrack, generally. Mm -hmm. Well, that one, he incorporates both the AHA song, The Living Daylights, and the Pretender song, Where Has Everybody Gone, into right. motifs, depending on what's happening. So you get, you get kind of two very distinct motifs on the soundtrack. Really good stuff. Well, wasn't the Pretenders one going to be the theme tune, and they changed it at the last minute? Is that yeah. true? Oh, I didn't know that. That is true. It's based and based primarily on the success of Duran Duran in A View to a Kill. I mean, that A View to a Kill was number one in the U.S. charts and number two in the U.K. charts, which is the highest charting a James Bond song has ever done. So the thought was, well, you know, we got a a, a, a pop band to do this, and we had a lot of success. Let's try that again. It didn't quite work out, but it's still a very memorable theme tune, I think. Definitely. Right. Um, I I have to, to dodge the question. I like. I'm sorry. I like all of them to oh, lesser stop. Come on, that's a degree. It is. I have a favourite one for each Bond. Yeah. Well, we, I think you see the problem is is that he's in the UK, and if he if he says the wrong answer, <laughs> certain groups are going to show up at his house, and then you know then things get ugly. Now you yeah. understand you understand that naming your favourite doesn't necessarily exclude the others. No, I, I get that. I completely understand that. But I, I appreciate. It's like Doctor Who. I appreciate what each actor brought to the role. If you're going to put my arm up my back and hold a gun to my head, I would have to say at the moment my favourite is Daniel Craig, mm -hmm. and my favourite film is Casino Royale. That's but a damn in, good movie. Yes, yeah. In terms of overall, if you're absolutely going to hold that Walter PPK to my head. I would have to go with From Russia with Love and Connery would be my absolute favorite Desert Island Bond movie. All That's right, it. can't argue with you. 
Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting that we all chose different ones in different films, which shows just how much his influence has spread and how different people appreciate different things. With the caveat that, like Scott said, a lot of them are the same movie. Right. And a lot of them are piecemeal from other movies. But, but the fact know. that they've managed to keep that formula going for so long and done such a good job of it with no continuity baggage at all. You can sit and watch Octopussy and then the next day you can sit and watch Thunderball and by and large it doesn't matter. Yeah, and I think that's the template they should be following for superhero movies, but that's a different conversation. Well, I mean, that, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, side bit, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about some of the uh, specifics, but when Never Say, Say Never came out, uh, you know, that's from the script for Thunderball, and it comes from that whole lawsuit, and basically they had the right to make that movie and remake that movie as many times as they want, and that was the theory that was being posited at the time when that movie first came out, was that they could remake that same story every couple of years or so and not even have people realize that it's the same exact story <laughs> because they can make it in such a convoluted way that, that it would just kind of just be a new Bond movie. Yeah, and you know that, that's the beauty of the, of the Bond formula is that it works so well and that it's so, you know, it's the formula in its, in its uh, when you get break, really break it down and get down to the, the brass tacks of it, the formula is so broad that you can really go in any direction with it. You know, you can have a a story that is grandiose and comic book epic like Moonraker, and then it's the same basic formula that we see two years later in an intensely personal story in For Your Eyes Only. The yeah. formula is still almost exactly the same. It's just the scale that's different. You know, and, and that, that's the real beauty of it. I mean, one of the best descriptions I've ever read of uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, which I, as an absolutely fabulous movie, used to show on a, almost on a continuous loop on TBS back in the day, and I, I really liked The Spy Who Loved Me, was that it was the greatest hits Bond movie. It takes all the best bits from the movies before it and puts them into one convenient bite-sized package with Jaws. So it was like... <laughs> You know, it's like you get a best of album and they have that new song on it. That was basically it. You got all the best stuff you've ever liked about James Bond and we're throwing in Richard Keel with Steel Teeth. You know, so it's, it, you're right. I mean, the thing about a formula, if it's not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> and it also means that you can, you can break the formula to great effect, like Scott mentioned with License to Kill. Yeah. Or you mean, we, the, the, change mean from, uh, the change from Die Another Day to Casino Royale. I mean, obviously they... Totally changed the formula and turned it on its head. And what's what's interesting also about Casino Royale because Andrew, I, I agree with you. Casino Royale, I saw that actually saw that at a drive-in theater of all things, and uh, I really really enjoyed it because I'm a big fan of the of the novel Casino Royale. Mm. And and we talked about this briefly on email the other day was that Casino Royale in my book is one of the ten most exciting films of the last decade. And what's the major set piece in that movie? A card game. I mean, that tells me that you can that that you're you know that you've tapped into the core of what these characters are and can get people excited when they're sitting at a table playing cards. Yeah, I will. The only thing that bugged me about the Casino Royale thing was not the film; it was the publicity for the film made it out that we're going back to the beginning and doing his first adventure. The book is not Bond's first adventure. No. You can argue a case, it's his last. He's been put out to pasture in the book. He's pushing the mandatory double-O retirement age. And the fact that he's even reached that age, they go on to explain in, I think it's the Moonraker book, isn't it? They explain that for a double-O to reach the retirement age is extremely rare. Yeah. 
Yep. And Casino Royale in the book is essentially M just keeping Bond busy while he gets ready to retire. Right. But but you know you know how this goes when when you have a success suddenly <laughs> yeah what, what last story now becomes the first well that's uh, what I found interesting about the Fleming books is how quickly Fleming does what comics have done all the time he very quickly de-ages Bond doesn't he in the novels he, he'll reduce his age slightly and he'll do that whole thing that there may have been a year between books but there's only been two months as far as Bond's concerned yeah. and I like that he's already playing around with what the comics comic books would do very successfully when you've got a successful character you want to keep that going now of course obviously the first film was the sixth book which was Doctor No yes uh, see what I did there Connery <laughs> is arguably the roughest one since uh, until Daniel Craig there's a wonderful scene in Doctor No where he kills a guy and then shoots him again just for the hell of it. He yeah. would never be that ruthless again, except perhaps in Thunderball where he shoots the guy in the face with the harpoon gun. <laughs> At point blank range, he yeah. fires the harpoon. And you're like, this isn't kid stuff a no. lot of the time. Um, and it's, it's hard now to put it into context, but Doctor No came out the same week as the first Beatles single. And the 60s have been summed up as the Beatles, Bond, and Batman. And I suppose it's, it's difficult for us not being there to actually look at how different the Bond films were compared to other movies of the time. There's an awful lot of Brits, particularly British, boring. I mean, Scott and I have discussed this before. Boring kitchen sink dramas. Boring remakes of Pride and Prejudice. And then suddenly, James Bond comes along. And everything's glamorous and everything's exciting. And you've got Ursula Andress coming out of the sea. Yeah. And, I mean, even, I mean, they obviously couldn't do what was in the book, but yeah. it's still pretty damn sexy. Yeah, what, what's, uh, and, and you're right. I mean, Dr. No was a, it was a, a revelation in a lot of ways because it, it took the, um, you know, we were coming out of the, we're, we're 1962. You know, we're still kind of entrenched, especially in, in the States, of the, the the post-war boom, you know the 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 fifties, the Eisenhower era. This I'm is. Bit, you know, sorry, sorry, we're coming out of rationing from the war. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a similar thing, but not the same. Mm-hmm. And oh. so, and and that's where the the books caught on. Also, was that you know it was uh, it, it was it was exotic and it was uh, like you said dangerous and it wasn't you know wasn't uh, kid stuff and this was uh, this was something that had an edge to it. And and this was you know the it's always the cliche that this guy really was the you know the guy that all the men wanted to be and all the women wanted to be with mm. you know and you could uh, you could put yourself into that into that you know into that into his shoes and you know it was oh, I mean the the influence of Doctor No on not just the uh, you know the the genre that it helped create but the action movie genre in general. And and you throw throw you know uh, Goldfinger in there as well. It cannot be overstated the influence of these films on the way that what eventually would be become known as the blockbuster film. Because what they also helped get away from was that were the these were spec- visually spectacular films. There is no doubt. But what came out in 1963 was Cleopatra. Okay, and Cleopatra was kind of the. Uh, the either the zenith or the nadir, depending on your point of view, of the hmm. spectacle film. You know, the widescreen spectacle film. We're just going to show you all the spectacular stuff in Technicolor and super widescreen and ooh and ah and ooh and ah. And then you sit there for three hours and all you get is an ass ache because the movie sucks. 
okay? And I like Cleopatra, and I'm still making that statement. Dr. No showed us, you know, it was one of the first films to show us that, wait a minute, we can use not only the technology, but we can tell a, a exciting story with, a character, with characters that we're interested in that is adult and not, you know, um, not, not something that's just parading money in front of the screen. We're going to use it, and, and we're going to make it work. And these weren't super expensive films. You know, the, these, these films were, were made with ingenuity. They weren't yeah. just throw money at the problem. It wasn't like the, you know, in Cleopatra, the line is, there are many such gold sticks in this movie. <laughs> there's, no, there's no gold sticks in, in Dr. No. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a strong argument in there that the Bond films are independent movies. Yeah. Broccoli and Saltzman put the money up themselves and then licensed it out through United Artists, similar to what George Lucas would do with the Star Wars films in many ways. Mm-hmm. So they had a budget that they had to stick to, and obviously they ploughed the money from the last film into the next film. So yep. by the time you get to Thunderball, it is a big, widescreen, expansive movie. Thunderball is the first time they film in 70mm. Thunderball mm-hmm. is the first one where the gun barrel sequence at the beginning is Sean Connery. In the prior films, it's his stunt double. It's not even Connery who does the gun barrel bit. Oh, really? Oh, you could have yeah. gotten shot. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't want your like actor in real trouble. That's <laughs> you, you, know, you know what I, I love just right off the bat with Dr. No is I felt like they set the tone the second he comes on the screen. That scene with, what is it, Victoria French? Yeah, admire your nerve, Mr. Bond, and whatever she says, and then he says, oh, no, they, they go to ask him his name, actually. She goes to ask him his name, and that's when he gets up and he says, Bond, James Bond, with the, the John Barry theme swelling up in the background. Yeah, and the, the from the, it's angled so that you don't see his face properly until he delivers the line. And for me, that's the only introduction to a character that comes even close to that in terms of iconic status is the introduction of Indiana Jones in Razor the Lost Ark. I knew that was what you were going to say, because yep. as soon as you said the only one that comes close, that's what I thought of. Carte. Carte. Neuf à la banque. I Une need carte. another thousand. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to, um, raise the limit? I have no objections. The introduction of Indy and the introduction of Bond, you're introducing your main character, and in both cases, it's such a wonderfully executed example of editing and camera work and the actor just nailing it from, from the get-go. And it's fan- it is for Connery owns the role from Doctor No, and even in his lesser performance, uh, which for me is Diamonds Are Forever, he's still Bond. In every way he moves, the way he talks, his line deliveries, the fact that he's so blatantly a sexist pig, and yet <laughs> that's what my wife loves about Sean Connery. Yeah, that he's a sexist bastard, but she's like, you know, he can get away with it. 
Yeah. He, pra- he practically rapes pussy galore. Yeah, well, especially when one considers that she bats for the other team, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, he turned it. He got to switch fights. And you know what? Sean Connery is the James Bond that not only do you believe he'd kick your ass if, you, if he had a reason to, but you also believe that all the women would go for him. Yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly what Angela said. My wife has said the only other one who can pull that off is Daniel Craig. He's got kind of the smolder going on, you know. Yeah. This this this, this is taking a weird turn. Uh, <laughs> so moving quickly on. No, what I, what I do want to say, they're talking about Doctor No and and introductions. Is that you know we do get the gun barrel scene, but then we go straight into Morris Binder's kind of op art. Yeah, there's there's no pre-credit sequence. Pre-credit scene no. per se, and and that op art. You know that was it was so you know to to steal a phrase from uh, from our friends across the pond it was so mod you know and, and it's so I always thought it's like you know when I die I want Maurice Bender to do the video they show at my funeral <laughs> I want women jumping around and guns firing lasers and you know you know like just put put my major accomplishments on screen in plain white text that'd be beautiful you know get yeah. shot, see to sing it everything but unfortunately now he's dead so I'm I'm out of luck but. Uh, but then, even going from the the, the uh, mod op art opening, which I, I really enjoy that one, just because first off, it's just the James Bond theme, and then it's the little bit of Calypso at the yeah. end. Is you the get three blind mice? Yes, yep. you get the three blind mice who execute, uh, hunt down and shoot strange ones. And even the way that is shot is really very forward looking. That's the kind of stuff. I mean, it's a lot of it is is no, kind of noir angles, but doing noir in color was kind of an odd thing to do, especially in, in the '60s. But it would become more, uh, it would become more common towards the end of the '60s into the '70s. The way that's shot with the cuts, where we see them, and then we cut back to strange ways, and the way that it's cutting around, and then at the end it just cuts to them going through the file cabinet. You know, uh, what is it? Um, I forget the name of the island. And then, you know, Dr. And Dr. No throw the files down. And, you know, so right now we're, we're just thrown into the story. We don't know anything about Strange Ways. You know, we, we just know his name is Strange Ways, and we know that, these, that he's been killed and these files stolen. So we're immediately kind of intrigued by, okay, what's Crab Key? You know, who is, who is Dr. No? And I do also want to say, just as a little aside, the... Uh, when Doctor Doctor No was tran- the title was called I think I forget what it was called in Japanese, but when they originally translated it, um, it was it was translated as Doctor No. <laughs> <laughs> Is this like the Japanese Star Trek titles that are just awesome? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do we think of the Bond girls in Doctor No? How oh, oh. wrong with Ursula Andress? No. With it. It, you know, it's, what's funny about Ursula Andress is, uh, first off, um, by 1962, Fleming was writing on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, he mentions um, that uh, of all the people staying at the resort, one of them, he goes, the, the beautiful blonde Ursula Andress. Just <laughs> throw it in. Uh, interesting. I mean, the thing about Ursula Andress is Honey Rider, you know, she's often, she's often, and rightly so, pointed to as like the epitome of the Bond girl. Because, you know, the first time we see her, she's wearing her awesome, awesome bikini. She's wearing nothing in the book. Yeah, in the book, she's not wearing anything, but you can't, you know, this is mm. the 60s. But, uh, but what's interesting to me about her is that she, it, it's not just her looks. I mean, yes, Urchel Andrews is, is gorgeous, and she looks amazing in her bikini. But she's a, she's a dangerous girl, too. Because, you know, they, everyone always talks about you know, some of the later girls, they tried to make her 
make the Bond girl kind of bonds equal, and it never quite worked out. It's like, you know, she doesn't fuck around. She put the, the spider into the bed of the man who attacked her. You know, she killed her attacker in a, you know, after the fact. And she pulls her knife, ready to defend herself. She's not just a, you know, oh, James type, mm-hmm. you know. Honey Ryder is a, is a tough girl. And that's why I always, I always point to Honey as kind of the prototypical one because not only is she, you know, she's gorgeous, but she can, she can mix it up if she needs to. Yeah. Uh, it's also the first appearance of Felix Leiter. Played by Played. Jack Lord. I get yep. the biggest kick out of that. Yeah. yeah. But it, a Y-E-5-O favorite, Jack Lord. That's my favorite Felix Leiter. Is yeah. it? Because, you know what? Because he, he's the only actor that I ever felt played Felix Leiter who could match Bond with his cool. I, yeah. I didn't think I didn't think they ever did that again. And my least favorite is actually in Goldfinger because they picked a guy who was just too old. Mm. Or I don't even remember the actor's name. And the thing about thing about Lighter is that, especially in the in the books, is that when when uh, when Bond is with Lighter, that's really the only time that he's it's like casual Bond. You know, when him when him and Felix are together, he's obviously having a good time. Like, it, well, you, you you get the feeling Felix is the closest thing he has to a friend. Right. There's a there's a great sequence in uh, Diamonds Are Forever, the novel, where they're driving from New York. Uh, drive, I think they fl- I think he flies into Idlewild, and they're driving up to Saratoga. So they're driving upstate New York, and they're in his um, oh what is it? It's the, uh, the 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 Studilac, the Studebaker with the Cadillac engine in it, and it's this whole thing about their just their trip, you know. Which is uh, is it's not there's no action it's just them driving but it's them and you see their interaction and um, and it's just it's great fun just seeing these these two guys that are obviously pals hanging out with each other. There's also a, a funny bit where they're surveilling over the uh, the rooftops in New York and um, Felix spots a girl that's sunbathing and says, "Oh, natural blonde." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we get the the formula sinking in. By the time we get to From Russia With Love, which has my favourite Bond bad guy. Red Grant? Red Grant. I love Robert Shaw in this role. He's, he's, he is chilling without any of the usual ticks that you expect from a Bond villain. Yeah. And he's capable of going toe-to-toe with him. I'm a, the oft-pointed-out-to fight in the, uh, the train mm-hmm. at the end mm-hmm. is still brutal, nearly 40-odd years later. It's, I love... I, I really do love Red Grant. He's even better in the book. Yes. Where he's even more of a sadist. But Robert Shaw's brilliant, and Rosa Klebb's brilliant. Um, and the pre-credit sequence this is, is, is interesting as well, in that Bond himself isn't actually in it, yeah. even though Sean Connery is. Yes. Um, right, right. Yeah, it's the one, for those that don't remember, it's the one where Red Grant is hunting Bond to prepare him for his mission and it's just a guy with a Bond mask on like those masks that they would use in Mission Impossible all the time <laughs> you take it off and you look like a different actor yeah. um, I've said From Russia With Love I think is my favourite Bond film if I had to choose because the formula hasn't sunk into the point yet where it's a bit repetitive but it's, it's laying out its stall for what future films will be yeah. Connor is totally in command and the it trivia on that one uh is that that was JFK's favorite Bond book. Yeah. Or his favorite book. I don't even know if it may have been on just his favorite book, period. And that was the last movie he saw before he was killed. Yeah. yeah. And that that's was why, that's why it was chosen, is that there was, I think it was either in in Time or People or one, one of the major news magazines had an interview 
with uh, President Kennedy, and he said that, you're right, that he said that it was either his favorite Bond book or that he liked the James Bond series, and that was the one he liked. So that was why they chose to do From Russia With Love. Which obviously sent the sales of the books through the roof after uh, Fleming was considering not writing anymore. Because at the end of From Russia With Love, the fight with the the spikes were left to believe Bond is dead at the end Mm -hmm. of From Russia With Love in the novels. Yeah. What's interesting about um, From Russia With Love also is Red Grant would become the first of many tall, blonde-haired assassins that James Bond would tangle with over the years. (laughs) Yeah, up to... Tomorrow Never Dies is one of them, doesn't it? Yeah, Mr. Stamper is a yeah. perfect example. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the thing, and you're right, Andy, I, I really like the uh, Red Grant in the novel where he's kind of the bloodthirsty Irishman. You know, he's the the, the, yeah. blood, the Irish bastard is what I always refer to him as. Yeah. Well, the commendable thing about the novel as well is Bond isn't in the first third. Red Grant yeah. holds your attention throughout that novel. Yeah, Red Grant and, the, and Fleming's depictions of life behind the steel curtain. Mm. Which, again, for, I mean, I read that book after it was probably after the fall of the Soviet Union, trying to think of, you know, the timeline here. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in the tail end of the Cold War, you know. So reading, a, and, and then I was, and I remember very distinctly when Soviet Union came down. So reading about life in the, uh, in, in Soviet Union in the 60s, that was really just kind of fascinating stuff to me. I mean, people who, who know me, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty staunch anti-communist. So reading about this stuff... From a you know from knowledge that was at the time you know very um, um, contemporary was was really interesting to me. I really liked that reading about Tatiana's life and uh, you know what she's got to do on a daily basis and all that. So you're right. There's a lot going on in there that doesn't have anything to do with James Bond. Doesn't have anything to do with his mission. It's just you know Grant and Tatiana and Cleb and all that. Uh, I do also, but I do want to say that the you know, Shaw does a. He's, he's he's really good insofar as, you know, when he is pretending to be the British agent on the train, and he switches to his, you know, his cover after we've seen him, you know, be, as a, you know, just a vicious killer through the rest of it. That's pretty, that's pretty damn cool right there. Mm. It's like, hey, old boy, you know, and he's, and he's just keeping Bond at ease and you know that he's just waiting to strike. Uh, I love how Bond tr- uh, twigs him as well, that he yeah. has... Um red wine with white meat is that right am i remembering that correctly my dad (laughs) (laughs) uh showing his most civilized thing because the thing that they've never touched upon in the films is bond's origin as a person it was mentioned i think in goldeneye that his parents were dead and Uh it's mentioned in casino royale that she thinks he's from money um, Vespa thinks that she says to Daniel Craig, "You're obviously from money, but you don't wear it well." Whereas in the book, it's isn't his parents are both dead, and his only living relative was his uncle who took him in, but wasn't interested in having children. Yes, and so parceled him off to Eton. Yeah, that, and, and that's boarding so he, school. Yeah, and that's and that's why he went to the navy, wasn't it? Just yeah, straight from there he went to be a navy com- and rose to the rank of commander, and was then enrolled into the double O's. It's that's never been mentioned in the films, is it? Yeah, mm. is it the the fact that he reached the rank of commander? Yeah, yeah, because they go into that in the Spy Who Loved Me. No, his yeah. entire his origin with his family and why he essentially he's the loner that he so. is. I don't think that's ever been touched on. That no, I, I can't remember, but I know the commander thing definitely has because when they bury him at sea in the in the one movie, they keep referring to him as Commander Bond and they give him an official Navy yeah. burial at sea and, and, and all that. Yep. Well, all of them so far, except Craig, have had a scene. Oh, I don't think Timothy Dalton did, did he? Have had a scene where they they wore the naval uniform for some reason. 
I don't know. There's not one with Dalton wearing the uniform. No, there's not one with Dalton. Yeah, um, Connery does. Moore does. I think Brosnan does, doesn't he? I don't. I can't remember him doing it. So maybe just been was... two of them. Yeah, I thought I could have swore I remembered them actually referencing Brosnan and seeing him in the naval uniform. But now that you're making me think about it. Yeah. <laughs> now that we're making you think. Yeah, now that you're making me think at this early Sorry. in the morning. That's just too much. Uh, no, it's not early in the morning at all. It's late at night. No, it's fine for you guys. Um, obviously, we got the Aston Martin in Goldfinger. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Is that not the best Corgi toy ever? Yes. <laughs> I, I can't. I, I, I still actually have one sitting. Uh, I have a shelf here where I have all the sideshow collectible bonds. So have I. And, and I have the Corgi. A small corgi uh, Aston Martin on it. I've got my small corgi Aston Martin sat in on my DVD shelf next to my small corgi Batmobile. And and uh, I'm wait, I'm still waiting for them to come out with the sideshow Daniel Craig, but uh, I'm hearing that's never going to happen. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, well, they, my... they said the market kind of dried up on them because the all the other bonds ran somewhere in the thirty to forty dollar range each, and they said the market on selling them has proven to be so much less uh, uh, viable than they thought that if they tried to come out with the Daniel Martin, uh, Daniel Craig bond, that they'd probably have to charge somewhere in the $150 range for it. Wow. That's, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah, that's, I'm not buying it for that. No, I, I don't blame you. Uh, Goldfinger was the first time we had a true theme as well. Go on, Luke, sing for us. Goldfinger! <laughs> <laughs> And the man with the Midas touch, a spider's touch, such a cold finger. I'm sorry, Luke. I didn't know you were sick, dude. <laughs> oh, I hope your throat gets better. <laughs> I was told there would be no singing. Uh, for some reason, my Shirley Basie sounds like Ethel Merman tonight, so I... <laughs> Gotta sing, gotta dance. Lieutenant Horowitz thinks he's Ethel Merman. <laughs> oh, you've been wanting to do that forever. I wish I could, be if I could sing with a shit, I wish I could belt out Thunderball. I always thought that was a great, no, great you know, one. You know what's funny about, about Thunderball is that when Tom Jones performed Thunderball in the studio for the recording, when he hits that last note, the black... Thunderball. He passed out. <laughs> That's because his that pants were so tight. Yeah. What is it? Uh, strike, strike like a thunderball. Yeah, he passed out. And and what's funny is that if you look on the Wikipedia page on the Thunderball soundtrack for Wikipedia page, it mentions every time Tom Jones has performed the song live since and whether or not he has passed out. <laughs> <laughs> He, he changes the note, doesn't he, when he performs it live? I imagine so. I think if I did something and passed out, I would stop doing it. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Um, Goldfinger and Thunderball are a great double bell. Yes. If you watch them back to back. The only problem with Thunderball is the underwater sequences are, are nowadays are, go on for far too long. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they really do. I really dug them as a kid. I really liked... Uh, I kind of wanted to be a Navy SEAL as a kid, so seeing guys... <laughs> fight each other was really cool to me but now yeah you're right it kind of drags a little bit um my main problem with goldfinger is bond gets both masters and girls killed <laughs> yes he does <laughs> yeah, well you know there's a price to be paid for cool <laughs> if he hadn't interfered they would still be alive 
No, every every James Bond film has a, except for one that I'm aware of, has a sacrificial lamb. Goldfinger's got two, so <laughs> it's like, sorry, sorry, Tilly, sorry, Jill. <laughs> Been nice working with you. Yeah, but that that scene with the gold paint and everything is so iconic. Yeah, that yeah, it, it's yeah. almost worth it that he got killed. Even referenced in Quantum of Solace, so they're still nodding to Goldfinger. Yeah. And and that and that's a pretty horrible way to die, skin asphyxiation as well. And we talk about that sometimes on on the vault. Is that that's a pretty lousy way to go. But that one is a pretty terrible way to go. And the way that it's achieved on film is um, I do not remember the name of the actress who plays her. That she is painted gold, but the, and you can see the way it's shot is that only part of her is ever painted gold at one time. For a lot of it, her back is is completely bare because if you, like, if, if you were laying on the bed like she is, and you were painted entirely gold, including your back, you would start to suffocate. Yeah, and so well, Shirley Eaton's very famous because of that, isn't she? Like, yes. Just for Scott, Peter Sellers played James Bond in a, a version of Casino Royale that came up next. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? I tried to sit through it and it was pretty awful. So no, I, I've never seen it start to finish. I've never watched that one either. I have watched it. The only, I mean, it's it's pretty terrible. I mean, it's it's trying to be a lot of things and it and it fails at most all of them. Um, I used to I used to read a great website called the Bad Movie Report, and Doctor Freaks was the name of the proprietor of that site. He had a term that was called comedy which was K-O-M-M-M-E-D-Y, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And it referred to incredibly unsuccessful forced comic relief, and that's what that entire movie is. So, uh, But the, there is one neat thing about the uh, original Casino Royale, and that is Orson Welles as Le Chiffre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Except that he plays Le Chiffre completely different from the book. And now Le Chiffre is also a magician, in addition to being a really good card player and a mathematician. So that was an interesting touch. <laughs> you get I, the feeling Orson Welles was like, I would like to do some magic on the set. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, Mr. Wells. Anything you say, Mr. Wells. <laughs> uh, Connery's tiring of the role by the time we get to You Only Live Twice. Which, uh, you see, I have mixed feelings about You Only Live Twice. Is Even more than Diamonds Are Forever, I find this is Connery's lesser bond. Is that the one that takes place in Japan? Okay, yeah, I was gonna—I I was trying to just decide which of the two. I couldn't, couldn't remember which country it was. One, the, the only thing I've got on that one, I—the I, the only memory I can remember on that is uh, again watching that on VHS for the first time. I was actually able to frame for per frame because as a kid, I remember my dad really liking that one and, and having seen it a number of times. And there was one part where Bond is basically he's bullying a woman and he like does this super quick maneuver where he gets her bikini top off and then uses it to go around (laughs) her hands like a handcuff. If you frame for frame that, there's action. Is it? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. It's the it's the very beginning of Diamonds Are Forever. Okay. Yes, and if you frame for frame to frame it, you do see nipples. Yep, you sure as hell do. <laughs> uh, it, and I, uh, Andy, and they I, play that on TV because it goes so quick you can't catch it with the naked eye. Right. And Andy, I, I agree with you. Um, really, when I was doing my aforementioned, um, you know, intellectual, uh, weighty philosophical debate of who my favorite Bond was, you only live twice. Really worked against Connery. Because 
you know, it this should be an exciting movie, but there are large patches of this that are just kind of boring to me. And, yeah, and, it's it's not bad by any means. It's still eminently watchable. But you can see that Connery's kind of tiring by now. I mean, there's still some very funny lines in it. The woman called Chew Me yeah. is hysterical. The line about, in Japan, men come first. And Connery's wonderful reply, I may just retire here. It's There's some <laughs> wonderful bits in it. My friend, now you take your first civilized bath. Really? Oh, I like the plumbing. Place yourself entirely in their hands, my dear born son. Rule number one is never do anything for yourself when someone else can do it for you. And number two? Rule number two, in Japan, men always come first. Women come second. I may just retire to here. Um, is this the one? I mean, I'm like Scott now. They're all merging into one. Is this the one where the girl's in the shower and she comes out and says, could you get me some, something to wear? And he hands her a pair of sandals. <laughs> Is it just me, or does the poster for this one look a hell of a lot like Superman 3's poster? I mean, if he had Richard Pryor sitting in the Whirly Bird with him, yeah. I couldn't tell him apart, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> what I find really interesting about, about this is that um, they're, both of the actresses in, in this, which are, who are Akiko Waka, uh, Wakabayashi and Mie Hama, are both besides you only live twice are also known for being in Toho Godzilla series and other Daikaiju movies. Uh, Akiko Wakabayashi was one of uh, Toho's top girls in the early '60s. She was in King Kong vs. Godzilla, Dogura, and Gira the Three-Headed Monster. And Miyahama, she was in King Kong Escapes, which I covered a couple months ago on Earth Destruction Directive. And and what's funny is that. Um, Hama was originally uh, cast to play Aki, who is uh, that's she's Tiger Tanaka's uh, assistant girl, the girl who pick who uh, she drives the what does she drive? Um, she has a, like a little, she has a little convertible. I don't remember if it was a Corvair or what she was driving. Um, but she was supposed to play Aki, and Wakabayashi was supposed to play uh, Kissy, and they ended up switching during filming, uh, basically because. Um, uh, Basically, because Hamid wasn't as comfortable speaking English as Wakabayashi was, and Hamid's character and and uh, you know doesn't have as much English dialogue, so they ended up switching in the middle of filming, which I thought was pretty interesting. I guess the attitude is for a you know a, a, for a, a Western audience, one Japanese girl is as good as the next. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same. I mean, it looked lovely, but again, Bond doesn't really do much in this. I mean, at the end of at the end of it, the CIA come in and and save the day. He doesn't really need to be there and also it's a very disappointing showing for Blofeld yes. I love Donald Pleasance he's just not very good as Blofeld and, and given it, that I like this the is his first scar. appearance sorry I, I do like the scar yeah I, I just like that look well, and then the, the weird uh, the weird fact that uh, what's his name the actor who plays I guess Tiger goes on to play Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever oh no he plays um, no it's uh, not, it's uh, Charles Ray. Yeah, yes. crazy actor, and he plays Henderson. Henderson, I gotta be the contact. Well, and yeah, that that's that is that is kind of weird too. The thing with with Blofeld, I think Andy, I think this might have been what you were you were getting at. Every time we see him in the previous films, we see him from the back. He's a big guy, physically, and then we get you know uh, uh, Doctor Dom- Evil, yeah, who's who's smaller than Connery. And I don't I don't mind a lot of people. I've seen complaints about oh well, he had hair and now he's bald. It's like. 
if you Blofeld in the books radically changed his appearance every time Bond saw him. He was he was almost addicted to plastic surgery just to keep his identity a secret. So I don't think that. And the thing about the scar was that when they were originally filming, it was just Donald Pleasance. And, um, oh, who directed this? It wasn't John Glenn who directed uh, I Love Twice. Louis Gilbert. Louis Gilbert. And they said, well, he doesn't look all that intimidating. So they were trying out different things on set. They gave him, like, a lame hand, had him walk with a limp, uh, you know, tried different things out. And they finally came across the, uh, doing the dueling scar on his face, which is, you know, certainly iconic. I agree. You know, it, it's a great look. If, even if, uh, if we wouldn't, we'd only get it in the one film, and even then, only for a little bit of the running times. When you really think about it, you know, because mm-hmm. even most of this film, he's he's uh, you know, we see him from the back. He yeah, also... he is more Telly Savalas, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I I like Savalas as as Blofeld, but you know, that's <laughs> that's for the next next discussion. Uh, yes. The other thing it's, it, that's, uh, you know, what's odd about me is that everybody complains about the space stuff in Moonraker. I've never heard anyone complain about the space stuff in You Only Live Twice. And to me, the space stuff in You Only Live Twice makes less sense. <laughs> there are several scenes where we're watching things happening live in space on video monitors on Earth. And that just, you know, that, that's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> what, is there another satellite with a camera? It's like Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say they're using Enterprise technology in that part. <laughs> Pong was always ahead of the game with his technology. Uh, Connery would, of course, come back twice more. Do you want to do, do a brief discussion of his reprisals of the role before we move on to the next one? Sure. He'd, he'd come back for Diamonds of Forever. What do you think of Diamonds of Forever? I may be alone because I really like Diamonds of Forever. I, I think I it's love, just a fun movie. Yeah. I love Diamonds of Forever. I think, yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun. For some reason, Connery doesn't seem quite as bored as he did in You Only Live Twice. Even yep. though he's obviously older and he's not quite as in good physical shape anymore. It he just seems to be enjoying himself more. I mean, you do start to see his age in this movie, and I don't even think they were trying to hide it because uh, the hairpiece that they gave him had a little bit of grey in it. So I think they're trying to portray a slightly older Bond. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I always get a big kick out of the uh, the Blofeld, you know, having duplicate, you know, basically life model decoys running around. Uh, and, and and when you killed him, you never knew if you killed him or if you killed a double. And even if you did kill him, the double was just going to take over the, the the role anyway. Right. And and I just thought that was such a cool touch in the movie, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, I, I you know. The, the whole thing in, in Vegas, I think, is kind of cool. To bring him in there. Uh, a couple of the stunts, the, the driving up on two wheels with the red car. Yeah. You know, a lot, a lot of things that are just funny. Even even him uh, driving the, the moon vehicle. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just fun. The whole yeah. movie was just, you know, it, it really was almost a, a, a sign of things to come. That's what you were going to get with Roger Moore. Right. Yeah. And, and it's pretty much like they set it up for that a little bit. And then Roger Moore took the ball and ran. Yeah. And it's got Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. Mr. Kidd. just fantastic every time they're on screen. And, uh, and see, I, I'm a big... Diamonds Are Forever may be my favorite James Bond book. Um, it's it's basically the first half of the movie where it's Bond pretending to be Peter Franks going through the diamond pipeline as Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd are coming in behind him, killing everyone. And then eventually it, it takes kind of a... Um, the book and the movie deviate once they get to Las Vegas and things go in different directions because uh, there's no Blofeld and no Spectre in the book. Um, 
But I, I, Diamonds Are Forever was another one that I watched a lot as a kid. It always seemed to be one of the ones that was on TBS, and I'd watch it after I did my homework or whatever. And, um, yeah, I've just... But, you know, between just... It's, it's just a fun movie, you know? And, and I love the stuff with, with Willard White, you know, the uh, obvious obvious take on, on Howard Hughes. And, mm-hmm. and I love the, Mr. Wint, Mr. Kid. Yeah. And I, I like that they even retain some of their menace from the book because a lot of their scenes are almost identical from the book. Yeah. When they kill the dentist in the, in the, in the beginning of the movie with the scorpion... And uh, it's a uh, scorpion, Mr. Wint, one of nature's most deadly killers. Indeed, Mr. Kent always, and you know, Mr. Kid, always good to learn from a natural. You know, and they're <laughs> they, and, they are fantastic throughout the entire film. And them hold, and I like that they left in them holding hands while walking. So it's like, yeah, in fact, because their their homosexuality is much more overt in the book. But in, oh, it's in, not it's not that hidden in the movie. <laughs> oh, it's not it's not hidden, but it's not. <laughs> It's it's kind of played a little campy in the movie, whereas yes, I agree with it's that. played more for creeps than anything else. That you know these these two killers, two really vicious killers, are also lovers is is kind of weird, you know. And especially you know it was written in Diamonds of Forever. The book was written in was it nineteen nineteen fifty eight something like that. Yeah. So homosexuality was still seen as pure deviancy at that point as well too. Oh. 1971 it really wasn't all that well accepted either <laughs> oh, but, no, I'll, I'm willing to accept that this is all before my time so and then just, I, I, in, like, uh, just just as a side point that I remember I got a huge kick out of when I was in high school and uh, went to a fair with a bunch of my buddies and they had the Zambora the turning the woman into a gorilla thing <laughs> they actually had it and it was so cool I just you know I was going into it and it's just like this is diamonds up forever <laughs> I also I really do like um, uh, Tiffany Case played by Jill St. John uh, I think I, uh, do you I, know what I like her much better dressed in the Robin outfit than I ever did Bert Ward <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that she is in some ways you know very much like the Tiffany Case from the book she's really kind of hard boiled and you know uh, sassy and tough but the other ways she's just dumb as a brick you know <laughs> I like I like both sides of it. I love her thing when she's trying to cause a distraction at the gas station. She's just yelling at the guy for no reason. It's like I knew girls like that in my high school, and they had the same voice. Amazingly enough, but then it turns around like when she's yelling at Bond is like, "And what's my black wig doing in the pool?" And it's it's plenty of tool. It's plenty of tool. I didn't know there was a pool down there. And it doesn't that doesn't that have the famous line of uh, "I'm plenty of tool." You certainly are. Certainly are. I'm plenty Named after your father, perhaps. <laughs> Actually, what, what's interesting is something that was directly referenced in the script that ended up getting cut was um, the way that Wint and Kid kill Plenty. Clearly, they you know they, they drown her in the pool, but it's it's implied but not overtly said. If you look at the length of chain off of the cinder block, they chain her just so her mouth is at the water level, her mouth and nose. So that she would be basically prolonged drowning for hours. So not only were they murderers, but they were very cruel murderers. It's, yeah, there's there's a scene in in the book where they 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 put on football cleats and stomp on basically into Hamburg. They're you know these are two bad dudes you know, <laughs> mm. and I, they're two bad dudes, but they just look like you know you wouldn't give them a second look if not for Mister not for Mister Wint or Mister Kids uh, aftershave, you know. And I believe the actor, uh, and I can't remember which one's Mr. Kid and which one's Mr. Wynn. The, the dark kid. 
the, I was gonna say the dark haired one is Chris Bingle was dead. Yes. Yeah. Bruce Glover. Bruce Glover, right. Uh Connery would come back for Never Say Never Again, which comes about because of the the idea of Fleming wanted to make Bond into a movie before Broccoli and Saltzman got hold of it. And he teamed up with Kevin McClory. Kevin McClory. When, when the film fell to bits, Fleming turned the idea for the film into Thunderball, the novel. McClory sued him. Fleming settled out of court and McClory got the film rights to the novel, which would ultimately be a thorn in the side of Broccoli and Saltzman for a number of years afterwards. Yes. They finally teamed up together to make Thunderball. And then for many years, McClory was always on about he was going to make another one. Even as recently as 2000, right. he was on about remaking Thunderball again with another actor as James Bond. There was even rumours Timothy Dalton maybe brought <laughs> back to do it. <laughs> it never happened. But Never Say Never Again is an interesting footnote. But it doesn't have a Bond feel to it to me. Connery's in it, but he may as well just be doing a spoof Bond movie. It doesn't you know have the theme it's that it doesn't boy. feel right yeah there's if, all this talk about the new theme to that it would be okay yeah it's there's all this talk about the new man of steel movie not having john williams's theme and there's a part of me that understands this but a bond film without the bond theme just isn't a bond film and rowan atkinson's awful in it and i like rowan atkinson especially in blackadder but he's just far too over-the-top and campy in this, and it's it's not one of my... Fa- I think I've only ever seen this one twice. And uh, Klaus-Marie Brandauer didn't make a very threatening villain. And, and um, I'm trying to remember, because in, in Never Say Never Again, Bond and Largo, they play the video game. Yes. yes. And what I forget what... Do they play Shemenda Fair? I forget what they play in, in, in Thunderball. But when, when they encounter each other. I don't remember now. I can't but, remember. But, you know, it, the problem is is that that video game is so... It looks... I mean, it's, it dates the movie so badly. Mm. To me, worse than any other... I'm trying to think if there's any other element that dates a specific Bond movie as badly uh, as... Roger it. Moore in his safari suit. <laughs> in his well, 70s leisure suit is the well, only other thing I can think that really yeah. dates the series. I'll, I'll grant you that, yes. That in the... Was- I was going to say the wallpaper in his apartment, in, <laughs> which is, if, if there was ever a reason that he probably shouldn't have been knighted, it might have been that wallpaper. But <laughs> or, or how about Sean Connery talking about the Beatles as if it's some loud noise? Yeah, but that was, but that was Fleming's opinion. Yes, obviously. You know, so I'm, will, I'm willing to let that slide because you know, you know that that was if that was his thought. So it's like listening to the Beatles without him. Simply not done, you know. It's, I'm just, I'm just, just as far as dating it, though. Uh, yeah, people still hate the Beatles to this day. So who? Uh, me. So oh, <laughs> that's that's because you're eight. Because <laughs> I like good music, but I won't get into that. Chris Honey <laughs> will, will, will hijack this call and yell at me again. He's not the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, but him and I. Very as, dangerous ground as, now. As soon as let me just say, as soon as. On Dangerous Grounds, a Steven Seagal movie. You leave him out of this. As soon as the the um, the new Two True Freaks board, the Forum for Geeks one, within a day of it being launched, Chris and I were having an argument over the Beatles. So <laughs> I thought, well, shit, I guess I'm done. <laughs> uh, it was directed by Irving Kirshner. Yeah, and it had... And it had, Strikes Back. It had um, Max von Sydow played um, um, Blofeld in that. We only see him for, a, for like a little bit. 
I thought that was an interesting um, casting for for Blofeld because he he looked more kind of like what the what Fleming describes Blofeld as in in the novel Thunderball. He's not called Blofeld; he's called Number Two because of some very convoluted thing in um, in the novel Thunderball that the the agents of Spectre go by number and that they rotate the numbers every three months or something. Right. For this cur- currently. Uh, Largo is number one and Blofeld is number two, but the numbers aren't indicative of rank or anything. Mm-hmm. I really think this was done primarily so that on the back cover they could sell James Bond is fighting the number one of Spectre. <laughs> mm. Well, so. isn't this also as well why they, they can't use Blofeld and Spectre anymore? Because McClory just... still owns the rights yes. to yes, those but... characters on film. Yeah, this would come up de- um, uh, big time in the development of the Spy Who Loved Me, uh, but which we'll we'll get to in a little bit. But yeah, or, or the still... very beginning of Fear Eyes Only, right? And that that was the beginning of Fear Eyes Only was was done, and and for those who may not remember, it involves Bond fighting against, for all intents and purposes, uh, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, but it's, he's never named as such, or even seen properly, right? And and he's disposed of, and this was done because at the time. Uh, Roger, Sir Roger Moore had um, he had a four film agreement with United Artists, and he had completed his fourth film with Moonraker. So there was a lot of concern about not concern, but there was a lot of talk about bringing in a new actor. And so this was done as a continuity note and as kind of a, a you know a raspberry at McClory saying, well, we don't need your character of Blofeld to keep making successful movies. Mm. So we're gonna just dump him off in a pre-cutted sequence, and we're gonna continue making our movies that are making lots of money. Thank you very much. Uh, well, before Roger Moore would take over, yep. there is the the elephant in the room <laughs> that is George Lazenby's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Now, On Her Majesty's Secret Service is my favourite opening theme. Yeah. Because I'm not a pop music fan at all. I like jingly jangly indie guitar music and I like film soundtracks. So we're obviously going to have a huge argument about Duran Duran, who I absolutely despise with the fiery past of a thousand burning suns. But this one doesn't have a pop theme until the end. And John Barry's theme for this is superb. Yes, I was. I, I really liked when John Barry kind of reworked this a little bit into the early advertisements for The Incredibles. I was just going to talk about that, yep. Oh, well, go ahead then. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that uh, I, I'll never ever forget the first time that uh, I saw the teaser trailer for The Incredibles and uh, it's the one where he gets the call to action, you know, Mr. Incredible gets the call to action on the telephone and then the entire rest of this teaser is him trying to snap his belt and he's got such a gut he can't do it and when it finally goes to the logo that just says The Incredibles and it says something like coming in like two years or something I remember hearing that music and and really struggling to place it, and then all of a sudden it clicked. I was like, "Oh my God, that's Honor Majesty's Secret Service! That's awesome!" You know, and watching that, that trailer over and over again because I loved the take that they did because it's not actually from the the soundtrack. It's actually a, a you know a redone version, but it's clearly that theme, and I, I think that's great. And the Cardinal's entire soundtrack for The Incredibles is just one huge love letter to John oh, Barry. Absolutely. Abs- and I think specifically to this movie, too, you know, to, to honor Majesty's Secret Service. Well, it is a, it's a film that has been like Dalton. It has been appraised, reappraised over the years and now comes across a lot better 
than it did back then. At the time, obviously, he's following Connery. So he's given the short end of the stick before he even begins. He's not an experienced actor, but he looks the part. Yeah. He really does. And apart from the bit in the middle that drags interminably, this Her Majesty's Secret Service is a damn good film. Yeah. Connery this would be the best one he made. And it's a real shame, I think, that they reached the agreement with McClory because Honor Majesty's Secret Service was going to be the one after Goldfinger. Yeah. And and uh, and, and I'll, I'll agree with you, Andrew, because until we get to Timothy Dalton, I think that of all of them, George Lazenby is the one in my mind that looks like the James Bond that, um, yeah. that Ian Fleming's writing about. I mean, and that that's the famous story. Really? Yeah, I, give I personally think so. on its face, yeah. and Lazenby is pretty much a dead ringer for the way Fleming describes him. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sir Roger is a little too little too good looking because. Yeah. Hey, all right, if you're talking just strictly looks, then yeah, I guess I would buy that. The thing for me is that I really like the movie and everything, but Lazenby, he he seems like he's playing it a little he's too happy as bond you know what i mean he's constantly grinning and mugging for the camera and to me this is like it's got probably the darkest story of all of the bonds except for possibly license to kill yet he's kind of doing an adam west through the whole thing and i and it kind of takes me out of that movie is that just me no, no, it's a valid criticism of Lazenby. He wasn't an actor. He was a, an Australian model who got no. the part based on the fact that he looked like the book Bond and yeah. could do the fights. He, he is the most physical of Bonds until, really, until you get to Pierce Brosnan. Even you, Dalton doesn't do a lot of shooty-shooty run-run. And I would say more so Craig, because a lot of, Dal- a lot of uh, excuse me, a lot of Pierce Brosnan's action scenes are running around machine-gunning people. Or I would say, whereas Craig is more of a, you know, up close and personal, mix it up type of guy. Yeah. The, the thing about Lazenby, the, the story says that um, when it was announced in the papers that uh, there was that there was Connery was not coming back and there was in search for a new James Bond, that he was in Hollywood. And, and what he did was he went and he got himself a haircut. He went and spent, uh, I think it was every, every uh, dollar he had and bought a new suit, walked in the studio and said, I hear you're looking for James Bond. And, and it was just on his, you know, his initial look and, uh, you know, just the way he presented himself that got him the role. Yeah, because they wanted, interesting, they wanted to give it to Timothy Dalton. Yeah, but he was considered too young. He, when they screen tested him, yeah, they thought he looked too young on screen I to mean, be able to pull it off. I well, mean, you got to think of it, at that time, he may have actually been too young because... He's 22, yeah. You know, that, that 22 isn't seasoned enough to be James Bond. You've got to be at least 30, I would think. Oh. I, I argue you've got to be at least 35 to pull it off properly. Well, Unless you've got the only a craggy-lived-in face. The only reason I, I go with 30, even, is because you, you want to make a series of movies. And you, if you start with them at 35, mm. you know, you're looking at 50 before you know it. Well, uh, Moore was 47 when he took over the role. Yeah, I was saying, yeah. Sir Roger was screen-tested back in 1961 for Dr. Now. Yeah, it is interesting if you look at the history of it that they seem to have had their eye on who the next one is going to be all the way through the series. I mean, Pierce Pierce Brosnan tested when Timothy Dalton got the role, yeah. And if if, the current time is the only time where I'm really not hearing talk about who the next Bond is going to be. Because everyone loves Daniel Craig. 
I don't know what it was like, the press over here, when it's the big thing is when a new James Bond is announced and when a new Doctor Who is announced. It's all over the papers. Speculation for the first couple of weeks and then the announcement. And Daniel Craig got raked over the coals by the press when he was announced that he was going to be James Bond. It was actually mm-hmm. mean-spirited and vicious. Oh, I remember that. And it yeah, was like, why? What has the guy done to deserve that he's got this? So he's He had not blonde hair. Him. I remember that being the big deal with him, is that he was going to be the blonde Bond, and everybody and the was having The Bond, they were calling him. And it's just... Well, now, when I was in, when I was in college and I took a filmmaking... Or one of the filmmaking classes I took... Uh, the teacher, the professor that I had actually was, I don't know what role he played, but he was on the crew for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Right. And he you know, would tell us stories, and basically the story is that Lazenby was insufferable. That he, his ego inflated so much as soon as he got that role that while they were filming it, he it was impossible to work with, and they couldn't wait to replace him from the very, very beginning. Well, Diana Rigg has said as much the same thing. Yeah, I'd say Diana Rigg has said that she used to eat uh, as much garlic and stuff as she could before they would do their their uh, lovey scenes, just because they they didn't get along. Which is amazing to me because I think that Bond and Teresa have great chemistry. Yeah, honestly. I was just thinking that same thing. That's funny. Yeah, and and Diana Rigg may I, is is my favorite Bond girl. I mean, she. I mean, I love Diana Rigg. She looks so beautiful in this movie. You know, I loved her. I, I think she looks beautiful any any time if she's wearing her Emma Peel or Emma uh, her Emma Peel cat suit, especially. Mm-hmm. But you know, when when she pulls up in her uh, what what is the Contessa? She has a she doesn't drive. She has a Ferrari, doesn't she? But she pulls so. up and and she yells, "Get in!" When she opens the door, we haven't seen her for close to an hour. It's like it, you know, it's it's you know, you're thinking the same thing he is that oh well, an angel has come to save me, you know. And uh, and I, I love their scenes because I, I love Diana Rigg so much. And we touched on this earlier. I really like Telly Savalas in this film as well. Mm. You know, because Savalas, I think, gets to... Um, when Clancy Brown was going to play um, uh, Lex Luthor on Superman the Animated Series in the 90s, he said that the way he approached the role was trying to be like Telly Savalas in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And the term he used was a cultured thug. Yeah. And that's exactly what Savalas is. He is a thug. He's a killer and a criminal. But he wants to be he wants to be legitimate. He wants to be taken seriously and respected. So he puts on this air of being, you know, a nobleman and, and uh, royalty and uh, and all this. But at the at the end of the day, he's still a thug. And I think Savalas does a really good job of, of of presenting that to the audience. Savalas is an excellent screen blowfeld. Honor Majesty's Secret Service is deserving of its reappraisal. Like I said, the, the middle section's flabby. Yeah. And could have done with trimming. And there's an entire section in the middle where Lazenby is dubbed by another actor, George Baker. But you know, that was the same problem with You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice is it really needs to have about 15 minutes cut out of it. Yeah. And could argue that about Diamonds Are Forever as well. So, I, I you know, that was kind of the, the, the films of you know, the late 60s into 1971... They were... Honor Majesty's Secret Service is, is a good 15 minutes longer than both those films already. Yeah, and so it, it definitely does need needed a little time, a little bit of cut. But... And no, the, was... the pre-credit sequence as well is the first time that the nod to the audience was irritating. <laughs> mm. To the other fellow? Yeah, that's just, that's crossing the line into self-parody for me. Yeah, a little bit there. Yeah. 
never happened to the other fellow. Now, there was, there was some problems with the rights to this movie for a long time. That uh, they didn't show it on TV at all for many years. Uh, and then sometime around the mid-80s or so, all of a sudden it came out on video and they started showing it on TV. But for, during, during the 70s, they never showed it. And there was a version of this film that was prepared for PBS that's cut down by about an hour and has narration. Really? Yes, I I, it, I don't know I, I don't know if it was just a local PBS or something, but I've actually seen bits and pieces of that, where it's got some narration to kind of bridge the parts that were cut, which is very strange. Yeah, you guys just reminded me of the of, of something I had completely forgotten about. Is I can remember my dad, who you know really is the one that introduced me to James Bond, just because he used to like to watch them. You know, I I imagine mostly for the gadgets and for the girls, you know. And, you know, he wasn't, like, a big, huge fan of him, and he couldn't, he was just like me, he couldn't keep the movies straight and things like that. But I do remember him always saying that the one that he liked the best was the one it seemed like they never, ever showed, and it was the one where Bond got married. And as I got older and got more familiar with the movies and watched them over and over again and, and, you know, started to track them down in the early days of VHS, more and more I started to think my old man was nuts, that he just misremembered something somewhere. And it wasn't until the full series started to be released in order on VHS that this one finally came out. And I saw it, and I was like, damn, that must be the movie he was talking about. But up to that point, I'd never heard of it. I'd never seen it. I'd, I'd never heard of George Lazenby. And it was really cool because it was like, you know, just dis- discovering a, a, a secret. You know what I mean? It, it was. It had a really weird kind of mystical feel to it that here was this lost Bond movie that nobody ever talked about. Yet he remembered it. But only in in vague little pieces that he had passed on to me. That and so when I finally saw it, I was like, "Cool, you know, he he was right. This actually was a a really you know interesting Bond flick because it is so very different from the others, and not just because the Bond is different, but I think the whole feel of that movie is very different from the others. Yeah, the cinematography in it, in the the skiing scenes, is gorgeous. It is, and it's an exceptionally good movie to watch in widescreen. I mean, they all are, but there's something about Honor Majesty's Secret Service, there's a feel to it that the Connery ones didn't have. That, like you say, it isn't just because there's a different man in the lead role. There's well, something the, about that film. I mean, the ending of that one is, I mean, it's heartbreaking. It, just yep. the way that movie ends is so completely different for a Bond movie. You know, he doesn't win... He doesn't take down the bad guy, and he suffers a terrible loss and and personal setback that just doesn't happen in the other movies. I, I think that's really cool, and I mean, we didn't, we wouldn't really get that again um, until Casino Royale. I mean, yeah. I- excepting maybe the the Brosnan, which which I haven't seen. I don't know about those. No, none of the Brosnan ones have direct sequels, and even Diamonds Are Forever, beyond the pre-credit sequence. Honor Majesty's Secret Service isn't referred to, which I think is a real shame. If any one of them demanded an actual sequel, it's the end of this one. Well, see, I always thought that that scene that you guys talked about before where Roger Moore picks up Blofeld with the helicopter and dumps him in the smokestack, I always thought that that was supposed to be some sort of wrap-up too. Yeah. Um, e- even well, like, though I don't think that's the very next movie, but I still always kind of thought that that was secretly like... 
the little wrap up to that whole thing. It is. I, I uh, think that's correct because it opens with him at Teresa's grave. Yeah, he's at Teresa's grave, isn't he? Yeah, he, he is. But I mean, that's not the next movie, though, is it? I, it's, no, like not several even. movies that's, down the run. That's four, yeah. four more, four, five movies right. down the line. The reason, and again, the reason why this was done was it was a way because there was there was a lot of thought that Roger Moore was not going to be in For Your Eyes Only. And so it was, if yeah. it was a brand new actor, his first scene is visiting Teresa's grave and then dumping Blofeld down the smokestack. It's saying, okay, that was the old, this is the new. You know, we're, we've, we're finished with all of that. You know, that's behind us. We're going, this, we're going forward now. That was the, the idea with that scene. Yeah. And, For Your and, Eyes Only was written without an actor in mind. And I think it's Moore's strongest performance because of that. Well, and, and what Scott was getting at, talking about the end of Honor Magic's Secret Service, part of the problem is that, you know, most of the novels, the novels have elements that carry over, little things. Like in, in the second novel is uh, Live and Let Die. And See, uh, that's the only one I've ever read. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. That's the only one I've ever read was Live and Let Die because, again, it goes back to me misremembering that car scene in the wrong movie. So I read that book thinking it would be basically like the movie that I liked, and that book's not a goddamn thing like that movie. They just took the name off the cover of it. It's really bizarre. Well, the big in it. Well, the, the, it's got it's got the, but the thing is that Felix, like Felix Leiter gets fed to the alligator, in, in Live and Let Die, the book, yeah. Book, and then in the next book is Moonraker, and he's not in it, and then the fourth book is. Um, um, is um, Diamonds Are Forever. And we see Felix, and he's got, you know, scars. He's all scarred up. He's got a hook hand. He's suffered the effects of it, and now he's like that for the rest of the series. So things like that carry over. But by the time you get to what's referred to as the Spectre novels, which is in order Thunderball, Under Majesty's Secret Service, and then You Only Live Twice, they do carry over into each other. And they're direct sequels. So the problem is, you've made You Only Live Twice before you made. Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So now Diamonds Are Forever is kind of pressed into being that third part, except it, it really isn't, because you're, Blofeld's not integral to that story. You're kind of grafting Blofeld onto it. Whereas, you know, in um, especially the book, You Only Live Twice, Blofeld is a central character. Now, he's in disguise as Dr. Shatterhand for most of the book, but it's, you know, Bond's whole uh, milieu in the book is a result of the murder of Tracy, in Under Majesty's Secret Service. So by making the films out of order and they and so uh, radically changing You Only Live Twice, it really does kind of had that weird ending that's not really ever resolved, you know, in a, in a direct way. It's only, like you say, uh, resolved, what, a decade later in For Your Eyes Only. And even then, it's kind of a throwaway scene at the beginning, too. Mm-hmm. It's not, not the epic, you know, the original script of Diamonds Are Forever had this epic uh, knockdown, drag-out fight in the in a salt mine between Blofeld and Bond that they just simply could not afford to film. So the last we see of Blofeld, I mean, really see of Blofeld, is Bond bouncing him around in the little mini-sub. It's like, that's not really the ending to the guy that murdered your your, your, your brand new bride. And, that, and that's the other interesting thing. In the novel, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, it is Blofeld who pulls the trigger on Tracy. Yeah. Whereas in the in the movie, it's, it's Irma Blunt who pulls the trigger. And and Blunt shows up in the book. You're, uh, you only live twice. She and she and Blofeld are implied to be lovers in Under Magic Secret Service, but then they're living as husband and wife, as the Doctor and Mrs. Shatterhand in Japan. And you only live twice. And the problem with you only live twice as a book is that it's pretty much unfilmable. It's a lot of travel log. It's a lot of Bond being drunk in Japan. 
It's it's a lot of Dr. Shatterhand's Garden of Death. I learned about the Japanese ritual, ritualistic seppuku from reading this book. And you could tell Fleming was not interested in writing these books anymore at that point, too. Yeah. <laughs> he's got past the point where he cares anymore, but he's just doing it for the paycheck. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, we're, we're deep into Roger Moore now, so... Well, I just wanted to go back just for one second, because I just wanted to touch again. Yeah, you know, you were talking earlier about Telly Savalas being the cultured thug. And uh, I just wanted to, to, to hit on that for a moment, just because when I saw that performance, and I didn't realize, like, the way you, that you presented it just now, what reminded me of is if you've ever seen Telly Savalas in The Dirty Dozen. Yes. When he played, when he played Maggot, uh, who was basically just totally out of his mind. Uh and it, it, his performance as Blofeld almost always seemed like he had that guy bubbling up under the surface, that he was ready to come out at any time, which kind of plays into the cultured thug thing, that he's he's trying to be cultured, but you know he can barely contain that madness that's inside of him. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a guy that, that's murdered thousands of people through his actions, you know? It's like, and, and he's planning basically a genocide of the entire Western world. And here he is, you know... Uh, you know, chatting with Bond about um, you know lineage and histories. You know, like like he's some big important guy. You mm-hmm. know. Okay, sorry to take you off topic for a second. No, it's okay. I like rambling. It's all part it's what of the fun. best. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, we're deep into Roger Moore. He starts with "Live and Let Die," which has a fantastic theme tune. Even if you're not a fan of the Beatles, don't tell me you don't like this theme tune. I I look. Oh, first off. I it have been hyperbolic before when I said I hated the Beatles. The Beatles are all right, not. We're, we're all right. So okay, everyone's entitled okay, to their don't, opinion. Please don't. You know, don't send any hate mail. Uh, although it's better, I, I usually get no email for my show. So hate mail, I guess, is. <laughs> uh, I, I feel uh, compelled to point out that it's not the Beatles, though. It's actually no, no, Paul, it's McCartney Paul McCartney and Wings. No, and, but that's, that's what I'm getting at. I just, I just wanted to, to say, put that out there. I don't. I don't. I may have overstated my position about the Beatles earlier, but I do love this this song by Wings. And and what's what's great about this is that it first off it works in the traditional Bond sense that the title's got the title of the movie's got to be really early in the song you know but it's still a really rocking tune on its own and and it, it was so different from anything we had gotten before as far as just being a straight ahead rocker you know and, and, and the way the way the music it's, plays it, it, it's it's as it's almost as iconic as John Barrett you know even the, the non-lyric parts the way the music just goes that was one of one of my great moments was uh, seeing Paul McCartney in concert when they did that song. They just yeah. go nuts during that. I was just going to say it, it, and it was like I said, it was it was so different, and it would change kind of the, you know, we didn't have to have the big Shirley Bassey big voice. You know, we could do something different if it fit the uh, if it fit the, the theme of the movie. And I think it fits it really well because there's a lot of action in Live and Let Die. Yeah, you know, they they were they were moving towards you know there was a lot of there was a lot of chases. There was a lot of fighting, you know, there was just, uh, and it was a very kind of action-packed sort of movie. So having that real rocking, uh, rock and roll number to open it, I think was a great choice stylistically. Uh, the other interesting choice they made stylistically was it's a remake of Doctor No, for all intents and purposes, but updated to the 70s. So we've introduced, here's Connery in the 60s, this is more in the 70s. And it, I think it works exceptionally well as an introduction to the new James Bond without being overt about the fact that it's a new James Bond. 
There's yeah. a couple of things that Roger Moore chose. He never ordered um, a vodka martini shake and not stirred because he felt that was Connery's thing. So throughout Moore's films, he never orders that drink. Yeah. And the introductory scene in Live and Let Die is not in M's office, which I think is the only time we see Bond's house or apartment or flat in the film series. And then we get and one of the other stylistic things that he picked up at his own was uh, Bond smoking a cigar. Yeah. yeah, that was the whole thing as well, wasn't it? The cigars. And I, and I um, love it too. Cause it, it's because it, at first it looks weird, but then the way that the way that uh, that he that he actually handles the cigar, it's very it's very natural. And so yeah. it's like, yeah, okay, I could see him, you know, in a if we're playing cards, we could smoke a cigarette. But in, you know, maybe if you need it in the field, the cigar. I don't, and I like it. It looks, and you get the idea that you know, because they're in the Caribbean, that he probably had a source of Cubans waiting for him when he landed in San Monique. Yeah, just, no. to, just at the airport for him. <laughs> uh, I also love Yafet Koto in this film. Oh yes, I adore Yafet Koto in most things. Well, he's and really good in this. Well, the thing about Yafet Koto, and I think, again, I agree, I think he's a great actor. We recently did a retrospective on the Alien films, and we talked about Yafet Koto and Alien. Um, but he unfortunately is saddled with some of the worst makeup in the series when he's dressed as Mr. Big. <laughs> I really like him as Dr. Kananga. I think Kananga is a great villain. And I remember in uh, 95, in the lead-up to Goldeneye, there was, on one of the networks, they would do one of these... You know, those hour-long primetime specials, you know, where there was just hype pieces for the new movie coming out. And they had interviews with past Bond villains and Bond girls, and Yafet Koto was one of them on there. And he made, he, he talked about what he was trying to do for Kananga, and he said that with Kananga, he wanted someone who was jealous of Bond, who was jealous of, you know, Bond's, uh, the way that, you know, Bond was able to get things done, the way that he could... Uh, uh, the way that he operated and, and, and the, you know, the, the gadgets he had and the stuff he had access to. And I think that comes across. I really like the bit where Kananga's going over Bond's gadgets and he, he's like a fan almost. Yeah. He's very excited because this is stuff that he wants because Kananga is, he's hungry for power and money. And he's not, he's not a megalomaniac like Blofeld. He's more of a, of a, he's just a criminal. But he, he wants a taste of that good life, and he thinks that that's what Bond has, because Bond's got the Savile Row suit, and the uh, I, I love the scene of Roger Moore picking the ties. Yeah. That one, that's a bit severe. I, th- <laughs> I say that every time that, uh, if, if my wife asks me a question about, like, oh, what, what earrings to wear, the one I won't like, I'll say that's a bit severe all the time. <laughs> and but, I do, but his jealousy is also warranted, because Bond takes his woman from him. Yes. Yeah. Did you hit that? I love that that delivery too. And, so, and Jane I, Seymour was so hot in this movie. Yeah, she is pretty smoking in solitaire. And but but there there are some and there are some down downsides here too. I mean, Teehee's arm in in the book he's he's just got a hook, but they give him that mechanical claw that just looks really clunky. Yeah, a couple of times you see that it, that that arm is about six inches longer than the other arm because it's just a, a hook he's holding onto with his hand. Yeah, and and the whole bit with with Sheriff J W Pepper really should have been cut. I understand that it was you know it was kind of a it was a you know a, con, a contextual thing, and it, and it's meant as, as comedy relief. But it's like Sheriff Pepper really is kind of stupid in, in that movie. Now, does, does this predate Smokey and the Bandit, or are they trying to hop on yeah, the Yeah, uh, Smokey and the Bandit was seventy seven. So it actually okay. predates Smoking the Bandit. Predates Smoking like the Bandit. Like quite a bit. Yeah. And, uh, and he I... would reprise this role not only in the next Bond film, 
the man with the golden gun, but also in Superman 2. Yep. <laughs> For all intents and purposes, he's Sheriff J.W. Pepper in Superman 2, isn't he? Yeah, Can pretty beans. Cool. <laughs> rash for eat beans. Yeah, they, but I will say that um, I do really like the the very the pre-credit sequence of uh, Live and Let Die. Where yeah, again, see, Bond's not in it, is he? Bond's not in it. We own, but we see Kananga's agents carrying out their orders all across the world. They they kill the translator at the UN, and they kill the CIA man in New Orleans, and then they kill the other guy in San Monique. And I, I absolutely, with the way that they, the way that with the, in New Orleans, when he's watching the funeral, with the jazz band playing the funeral march, and the widow crying and all that, and he just stands there, whose funeral? Yours. Mm. Oh, I love, and they stab him, and then when they pick him up, it changes into high energy jazz, and everyone's dancing. <laughs> oh, I love for Felix Leiter being played by the only guy that would play him twice until we get to Casino Royale. Yes. David Hedison would return for the Timothy Dalton film License to Kill. Mm-hmm. And, and they make good use of... The one thing about Leiter always being played by a different actor is that it allows you to do a scene where Bond is being followed by someone we don't know and then it turns out to be <laughs> Leiter. It turns out to be Felix, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some some you know uh, outdated mo- things in there though with the uh, you know just kind of the whole Harlem scenes and everything. It's just just a little bit dated now. But, but the thing not- that dates that movie for me is that it's got the Seven Up guy in it going. <laughs> Every time I see that part, I'm just I'm taken right back to being a little kid in the Seven Up commercials and. Uh, me I love that guy though. The cola nut and the uncola nut. <laughs> I love Baron Baron Samadai. And 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 I th- oh, I think it was funny that they kept Baron Samadai in the film, but we don't. He's kind of he's almost like a supernatural character, because Bond he get you know Bond throws the snake at him and he falls into the coffin, but then at the end he's sitting on the train laughing. In, yeah, because Bond, Bond uh, 
basically shows that he's faking it with the little elevator and everything, and yeah. then he still comes back to life at the end, which is just right. cool. But I mean, I mean, Baron Baron Samadai was uh, Mr. Big's alter ego. In there is no Doctor Kananga in the book. It's Mr. Big, the American gangster, and then he plays Baron Samadai to keep the uh, the San Monicans in line in in the Caribbean, where they've added. You know, it's Kananga, and Kananga's alter ego is Mr. Big. And then Samadai is still there, but he, he really doesn't serve much purpose other than just to be weird. <laughs> so I guess it kind of ties in with the whole tarot card motif of the whole film, which I think is really the film's strong suit. Because you've got a lot of dissimilar elements, but when you tie it together with Solitaire reading her cards, they, they tend to make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, she's predicted this is going to happen, so we've got to go on to this scene here. We get to Scott's favorite stunt in the next one, which is an awesome stunt. If you've ever seen the DVD extras on this, the maths that goes into orchestrating this stunt is just phenomenal. Ruined by that ridiculous sound effect. It really is. Why could they not just leave that alone? Yeah, and... and, and is um, that the slide whistle where they go... Yeah, the... Woo, when yeah. you're like, ugh. And Cubby, in every other respect, that's an awesome stunt. Yeah, and Cubby Broccoli has said that one of his few regrets in the series was adding that in. That he Take wished... it out on the DVD releases, dude. Nobody would care. Nobody would care. In fact, they'd probably cheer it. Yep, that's one alteration I would not object to. And because it, and the fact that they actually did it is what makes it even more remarkable. There's no CG though. There's no strings holding the car. There's no cuts or edits. It's it. They actually did it. They only did it the once, didn't they? Yes, they only did it the once because they they went through and and used an early version of AutoCAD and a series of um, it was it was I think it was a car manufacturer or a you know a car research uh, lab that was developing automotive simulation software and they simulated the entire thing on the computer and got all the the angles of egress and ingress correct and the speed and what they all they needed and they, they, they did it all on the computer and simulated all of it before they tried it and they got it on the first take they said it looks great don't, we're done. <laughs> yeah. And they copyrighted it as well, didn't they? Yeah, they, they had, yeah, they actually copyrighted that stunt, and it's been used in stunt shows and such afterwards, and it's always, you know, they, they have to pay the license fee to Eon Productions for that. And, uh, Christopher and, Lee's good in it. I, I like The Man with the Golden Gun quite a bit. This, I this, do too, yeah. I mean, it, it gets kind of a bum rap because it is kind of a, a low, really low-rent entry. Um, what's interesting is that at the beginning of the series, the films came out um, in one-year intervals. We had Dr. No, For Much With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, all came out one year after each other. Uh, starting with the gap, there's a two-year gap between Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, and then we continue to get a two-year gap. Until now, Live and Let Die is 73, Man with the Golden Gun is 74. Um, and so it's it was kind of rushed. They, the story was going actively through rewrites as it was being filmed. The whole idea of the Solex generator was kind of come up with on set because they wanted to do Man with the Golden Gun because they, they you know, I, for whatever reason, they wanted to do it, but they didn't really know how to make it into a full story. The novel of Man with the Golden Gun relies a lot on Bond having been brainwashed following the events of You Only Live Twice, and then M kind of sends him on this mission to see if he can still hack it. And Scaramanga in the book is just, he's kind of like a middleman. He's not really a mastermind. So it's like, well, okay, he's an assassin, but well, why is he targeting Bond? In the, in the book, Bond comes after him. So it was kind of this way to, you know, the whole idea that the Solex generator, which tied into the uh, 1973 energy crisis, 
which, uh, from what I understand, uh, Andy, in, in, by 74, still hadn't really been... Uh, the UK still was kind of in the midst of that. Um, so that, you know, that they kind of make it. I, I, I think that... Uh, I really like uh, Christopher Lee's Scaramanga just because he's... You know, it, it was like, oh, he's too light, he's too light, he's too light. It's like, now Scaramanga's having fun. And the scene I like is when when the, he when Bond is going to meet um, Anders at the uh, the Muay Thai fight to give him the Solex, and he she sits uh, Bond sits down next to her and she's already dead, and then Scaramanga sits behind him and they have their their conversation, where he says, "Oh, it was a it was a you know moderately difficult shot," and he's talking about it like a sportsman. Yeah, I, I, I that and the scene when when Bond is on his island and Nick Nack brings him I think it's a uh, a colt. Like a, a cult peacemaker or something, and he shoots the top off the uh, the champagne bottle. And he says, "Oh, don't worry about this little toy." Th- th- this is a guy who's li- who at this point lives his own life. He lives very comfortably, and he enjoys killing people. He's not a psychopath. He is. No. He's peace. This is what he's good at, and he loves his job. Yeah, <laughs> it's his job, and he's good at it. But he's not insane yeah. like many of the other people would be. One of the things, again, for me is is the music, and I love... My favorite scene in the entire movie is when... Because um, I think we saw it once, maybe twice in the movie before Bond actually goes into the fun house. Yeah. And that's my favorite part of the whole movie. And there's a part where, where Bond's, you know, very much sneaking around doing the, the spy, you know policeman thing you know going around corners with his gun and and all that being very cautious and and everything and then the piano goes off yeah and when the piano goes off it plays the man with a golden gun theme but in an old like like uh old west bar you know out of tune piano kind of way and i just love that piece of music i i really like that whole scene and they have their their little duel at the end. I, I think that's great. I think it's actually one of the best uh, climaxes to a uh, to a Bond film. I, I I love that it's so personal. Right. It's just Bond and Scaramanga. And how does Bond beat him? Bond doesn't beat him by using some gadget or you know she, he outsmarts him. He outsmarts the world's greatest assassin. Mm-hmm. And I, and I I love the the cinematography of that because we had seen. Uh, in the pre-credit sequence, when Scaramanga brings in his little dueling partner, we had seen the the, the James Bond wax figure, and yeah. and so when he so when we see the shot through Sir Roger's hand at Scaramanga, and then he just turns and brings the gun up, it's like oh he's fucking got him now, you know? Right. And now Scott, you mentioned the soundtrack, and I want to talk briefly about the uh, the um, the opening scene. Now, the, the Man with the Golden Gun was sung by Lulu, who was yeah. a Swedish pop star, I believe, somewhere out there in Scandinavia. And uh, were to serve with love, right? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, you did. And, uh, and I, it's, an, it's an okay song. It's not nearly as good as, as Live and Let Die. I don't think anyone will make that argument. And, but it's, it's, it's uh, Cubby Broccoli, apparently, he hated that song because he thought it was just so suggestive as to be ridiculous. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it, it is the most double entendre lame song in the canon. But uh, originally, much like we had uh, touched on with, um, I think we talked we talked briefly about the Pretenders earlier. Uh, as our, Scottish, by the way. Scottish. Really Scottish, yeah. And who was Scottish? I, I don't know. Yeah. I was I was wondering what you were going on about the Lulu Scottish. Well, then is Maud Adams Swedish? Then somebody's Scottish. Swedish in this movie, or is Britain? Britain, I think, is Swedish. 
That's that's it. Okay. Um, but one of the the original uh, act who was approached to sing the man with the golden gun was the Alice Cooper band. And so there's a song on the album Muscle of Love called Man with the Golden Gun. And you and if you listen to it, I think I'm pretty sure I can find it on YouTube with the Alice Cooper song put over the opening credits. It fits perfectly. Was it? So was it rejected at the last minute then? Yeah, they. If, yeah, if I, I think at, at, well, I think at that time is that it, it was rejected relatively early on. I think the idea that Alice Cooper was a little too risque at this point, still this being the early '70s, you know. But uh, I, I I like the Alice Cooper version a lot more. I'm more prone to liking Alice Cooper. <laughs> but uh, I, I just think it's funny that there's a there's a whole great little subgenre of rejected Bond songs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly, Britt Eklund. Britt Eklund looks very, very pretty in her bikini, but my God, is she dumb in this movie? <laughs> uh, yes. Maud Adams is the, you know, we had the first double Felix Leiter, now we have the first double Bond, Bond woman with Maud Adams. Yeah, okay. Octopussy. Well, there's an, there's an interesting note about Octopussy, which we'll get to in a, in a little bit, involving, involving Maud Adams. So. We have the second best Corgi toy next, though. Oh, the Lotus. The Lotus, when you press the button, and all the, th- the fins come out the side, <laughs> and it had the little rockets in the back, do you remember then, that got withdrawn after some, somebody swallowed one? Sure. Uh, um, I used to have that. The Spy Who Loved Me is just, like, like I said earlier, it really is kind of the greatest hit Spawn movie. It's just set piece after set piece after set piece, right from the beginning with the... Uh, the uh, the, the fantastic ski jump. opening yeah, you get the ski jump in the free credit yeah, the, 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 yeah. um, the whole then the whole setup with the the you know the, the megalomaniac who's going to destroy the world is just so classic and this is probably the best use of that formula I think with uh, with Stromberg you know mm-hmm. and you get major Amasova who Bar- Barbara Bach looks beautiful in this movie um, and you get some great you get a great scene with with Q where we hear his real name for a change. Yep. I love I love that the Russian agent knows his real name. I think that's really funny. <laughs> and uh, it just this is just one that I can just this, to me this is one of the ones I can just throw in and watch, and I know every bit in it by heart, so it's just fun, you know. Yeah. And I, I like the scene when when Barbara Bach and Roger Moore are kind of sizing each other up, and uh, she mentions you know married only once. Yeah. And the way he plays that 
you know, all of a sudden he turns very, very serious. Right. And, and, and you know, she realizes, okay, I have to back off. I went a little too far. And I, I just love the way they play off each other, the chemistry that they had there. Yeah. it's. I think Spy You Love Me is just eminently fun. Yeah. But what's what's interesting is that, you know, we talked about um, how hot, like in Dr. No, when Bond shoots, well, I forget the guy's name, when he shoots him and then shoots him twice more, uh, there and we wouldn't get a really kind of cold-blooded Bond like that. I think we come close in in uh, two scenes in Spiral Up. The first is when um, uh, Sandor, the the big bald burly guy, uh, is coming after him in um, in Cairo, and uh, you know and, and and they're on the roof and they're fighting and, and he grabs onto he goes to fall off and he grabs Bond's tie. Bond goes, where's Fekesh? Yeah. And she goes, where's Fekesh? And he goes, pyramids! And Bond slaps his hand away. And he falls to his death. Mm. I mean, that that's, you know, for Roger Moore, that, that's pretty harsh. Yeah. So really harsh mm-hmm. to me is at the end when he's in Atlantis with, uh, with Stromberg. And Stromberg's got the giant gun under the table. Really only useful in very limited situations. <laughs> you gotta be sitting <laughs> right in that seat. Yeah. So, but then, and, and so then he puts the gun in the barrel of the long gun. I'm not sure how exactly that bullet made it through the mechanism at the other end. Willing to let that slide, but then he just stands up and just shoots Stromberg like three times, right in the chest. And it's like, you know, that that's you know, in the novel Moonraker, uh, at one point M says that he needs Bond to put a broadside in someone, and Fleming says that this is the you know M's way of of depersonalizing things by using naval terminology like that. Mm-hmm. In my mind, that is Bond putting a broadside in, in Stromberg. You know? Yeah. It, and, and like Paul said, that the scene where he shuts down Amasaba when they're at the, at the casino, that's, that's kind of hard for, for Roger Moore as well. I mean, yeah, Roger, the- Bond was described once as having basically three emotions. You know, uh, left eyebrow up, right eyebrow up. <laughs> Both eyebrows crossed when Jaws is choking him. That's pretty much the three expressions <laughs> that Roger Moore had. <laughs> but, but he showed in that scene that he could be serious and, and that he he could play the role in a complex way. Yes. Which, which is not something that was called for very often from him. Uh, I, I don't think it was a lack, lack of acting ability on his part. I think it was the way it was scripted. Yeah, uh, that's what the movies were at that point. Mm-hmm. And, 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 but, but I love when they, they show those little subtle moments. Yeah. Where's Feckish? Where's Feckish? Pyramids! Ah! What a helpful chap. And, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Richard Keel as Jaws in, mm. in the film. And and it's he's cliche now, but watching the spy love me, it's like he especially early on, like when they're at the pyramids and he kills Fekesh and, and when we first you know, when they first that is he's a menacing dude. <laughs> he's uh, big, he's weird looking. <laughs> I I know we're gonna get to Moonraker in a moment. Uh, but to, to compare Richard Keel in in the Spy Love Me compared to Moonraker, to me there's no comparison, and it's not Richard Keel, it's the way it was written again. Right. Uh, all of a sudden them trying to turn him into a good guy and a sympathetic guy, it just did not work. I, I didn't like that at all. And, and the scene where you know where he's uh, he tries to open his parachute and yeah. nothing's yeah. there. Uh, I, I, <laughs> he's supposed to be a menacing villain, and to, to present him as a basically buffoon really did bother me. And what's interesting is um, earlier, actually just a couple months ago, I read the novelization 
of Moonraker by Christopher Wood, who is the who wrote the screenplay. And the novelization apparently is almost identical to his screenplay. And one of the, and there's a lot of stuff with Jaws that's actually changed. Jaws plays a lot better in the novelization than he does in the actual film of Moonraker. For instance, in the pre-credit sequence, you know, we don't we don't see who pushes Bond out of the plane. And the, the whole second half of that with Jaws in the parachute doesn't happen. It's just someone out the basically after you know Bond after the girl jumps out, and then the co-pilot and Bond um, you know the co-pilot jumps or is thrown out. Somebody pushes Bond out. We don't know who, so it's a surprise when Jaws shows up later. Mm-hmm. All the stuff with Jaws and Dolly doesn't happen until they're on the space station. They're just two of the survivors, and they end up getting together then. The whole stuff with them in the cable car and them having their lovey-dovey scene, none of that happens in the screenplay. So Jaws comes off as much more menacing in the screenplay than he does in the what we actually get in Moonraker. And Curry Bates was something to do with writing the screenplay, wasn't he? In between Superman comics of... Uh... I, I think so. I think he might have been a t- an advisor or, had a, or worked on a draft. Because I know yeah. what complained that not com- well complained basically that his screen his screenplay for *The Spy Who Loved Me* pretty much ended up all on the screen, whereas *Moonraker* had significant rewrites done to it while they were filming, which he wasn't happy with. A lot of lighter elements came from the rewrites, and uh, and and even some of the you know like the one scene in *Moonraker* that to me makes has never made any sense is when Bond is on Sir Drax's estate during the pheasant hunt, and Sir Hugo Drax has the, the, the sniper in the tree that's going to shoot Bond, and Bond shoots him, and they're all kind of just looking at each other. At that point, why do, you know, it's like everybody knows who everybody is at that point. Why does Drax let him just walk away? <laughs> <laughs> you missed Mr. Bond. Did I? As you said. Such good sport. And because that was a bit that was added primarily for the joke, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, see, I'm schizophrenic about Moonraker. It's, with a bit of trimming, it would be a much more serious film, but I'm, I'm, this is where the rot set it in for me with Moonraker. This is where it's starting to be self parody rather than a serious film with funny bits. Yeah. Well, I, I, I... I kind of felt it fell flat on on many levels, to be honest with you. Not only what I was saying about Jaws, but I thought Drax was kind of a weak villain. Uh, I didn't like Holly Goodhead as the Bond girl. Uh, and, and I kind of thought the story was too derivative of uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Where, it's the same story. <laughs> I'm sorry? It's pretty much the same story. <laughs> well, exactly. You, you went from the villain who wanted to basically live in water to the second villain who now wants to live in outer space. You know, it's it's like... It was too repetitive too quickly. You can you can revisit things, but you can't do it that blatantly. Yeah, taken taken in that context, I agree. I mean, I think Hugo Drax's plan is a little more well thought out than uh, Stromberg's plan, and I like that Hugo Drax actually gets some of his plan started. You know, he launches three of the spheres. You know, he <laughs> actually is well on his way before Bond screws things up. And, and I, I agree with Andrew on this, is that I think with, with some liberal editing, uh, this film could have been much better. I mean, the gondola chase, the gondola chase when they're actually in the uh, canals is fine. When it turns into a hovercraft, now yeah. we've, we've gone beyond the pale at that point. 
Is that yeah. when we have the really cheesy double take, or is that in CRS only? Oh, that that's in this with the pigeon doing the double take. Yeah, oh, I hate cool. that. And it's or you know, it, it's and it just goes on. As I said, a lot of people complain about the, the space sequences, but to be honest, by the time the Moonrakers start launching, the, I like that part of the film. I like when they're in space because you know this was you know 1979. You know NASA was telling us, oh yeah, we're going to have manned space, space stations in two three years. You know. This this wasn't this wasn't science fantasy. This was you know very close to being supposedly science fact. And in, and and for instance, another thing is the uh, you know the, the the space marine fight, which sounds like I'm on a, a Warhammer 40k podcast when I say that. <laughs> but um, you know compared to the the fight between the space marines and uh, Drax's forces, compare that to the scenes, the very similar scenes in Thunderball, and the Moonraker scenes are a lot better. Because of the immediacy of it, I mean, there's a lot of people going down really fast in really horrific ways in that fight. When you think about how, you know, really nasty it is to be in space when you know your pressure suit is punctured by uh, a laser torch, you know that's pretty rough. So that fight is over really quick just by the nature of it being in a vacuum, you know, as opposed to guys wrestling in slow motion underwater. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's Moonraker is entertaining. It's an entertaining movie. You can watch it. It's just got too many eye rules in it for me. Yes. And for me, you can now lump Roger Moore's films in, with the exception of For Your Eyes Only. We're into a period where I I find them difficult to watch at this point. I, for I, Your Eyes Only. Is the, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say this. I I will say, Paul, that I do like uh, uh, Sir Drax. I think that. Um, Michael Lonsdale has just some great lines that he really delivers well. Um, you know, one of my absolute favorites is, "And you, Doctor Goodhead, your desire to become America's first woman in space shall soon be realized." <laughs> <laughs> and the one I know that Andrew, I know the one that you love is, "Take mm. this on, take him out of my misery." <laughs> yeah, I love that line. There is there is some brilliant dialogue in it, and that's why I, I can't argue totally, with those lines. I can't totally dismiss it. Yeah. It's as entertainment. You know what? It's it's almost like you know we're comparing them to each other. I don't think there's I, not a matter of I don't think I know there hasn't been. There's never been a Bond movie that I could say I dislike. Yes. You know I like all of them. It's just when you start comparing them to each other and you're trying to kind of rate them on where they fall on the scale, this one is lower for me. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll with that. I mean it's. And Moonraker's a fun movie, but it's like, yeah, there, like you said, there's there's too many points where you're just like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You, you did that, huh? <laughs> there's, 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 I don't think there's any point in this movie where I could say, this is one of my favorite things that, you know, my favorite Bond things, which probably almost every other movie I can come up with something. I, I will the say... Space music. Yes, the I was going to say... Barry Space theme, and we get the 007 theme again. Yeah, that's that's and and the and it's not a it's not one of the more popular ones, but I actually really like Shirley Basie's theme for this, which was kind of a last minute addition, and she felt was never really finished and never promoted properly. But I really like this one because we're we're it's kind of a very old school sort of song with with Basie singing it, and I like the kind of ethereal quality to the opening theme and the the uh, Maurice Binder uh, pre uh, title sequence. Because it really kind of um, uh, foreshadows the fact that we're going to outer space, and it has a you know a serial quality to it as well. 
I need and, to dig this one out and give it a listen to again because um, I was just thinking about the two that surround it. You've got The Spy Who Loved Me before it, which I think is incredibly ironic that that was actually one of the scores nominated for an Academy Award that year. I think that one's atrocious. And then the one that follows it is uh, For Your Eyes Only with Bill Conti, which I like Bill Conti. I think that's a terrible score. Terrible and that song... Score. If I ever hear that song again in my life, you know, it's... <laughs> uh, I was, well, I was going to say, I don't, other than Octopus in Fear of You to a Killer, the two that I find difficult to watch, but For Your Eyes Only is let down seriously by the score. It is so dated. That goddamn song is like muskrat love to me. I just, it's nails <laughs> on a chalkboard. I just can't stand it. I hate that song. Uh, uh, well, I kind of um, thought Sheena Easton was kind of sexy back then. Sheena Easton got that off the back of a TV show over here. There was a TV show called, I think it was Search for a Star, but I could be wrong. And the prize for the winner was to sing the next Bond theme. Huh. And that's where Shirley Easton came from. She won that, that song. For Your Eyes Only is a very schizophrenic movie. There is an alternate reality somewhere where Roger Moore didn't do this film. And somebody else did. They were they were looking at an actor called Michael Jaston. I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Jaston. He's another one of those classically trained, darling British actors. He was um, he's probably more famous for being in the Trial of a Time Lord season of Doctor Who. <laughs> he's, he's the Valyard. Valyard. That's that season. Uh, he was in the frame for being Bond for For Your Eyes Only. For Your Eyes Only is interesting because of that. Because it, I think it's more arguably his best performance as Bond because he is playing Bond as opposed to 70s Bond and he is a, r- a bit rougher around the edges yeah than he and would be in his other films so the, the, scene that, the scene that's always pointed to in Fear Eyes Only is uh, when he kicks Locke in the yeah. Mercedes down the hill and that was fiercely debated that Roger Moore at first said you know James Bond would do this but the James Bond I play would not do this and so there's a lot of debate of whether they would rewrite it, whether they would find a different way to do it. And when it finally came time to call action, he did it without hesitation because he said it serves the story. It's what needs to be done in this scene, even though it's different than the way I would normally play it. And I think that that really is a, a good, you know, that 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 scene sticks with a lot of people because, like I was saying with the you know the, the harder scenes in Spy Love Me, when when Roger Moore gets hard like that, it's it stands out, and mm-hmm. it's it's a very you know, kind of, it's very telling when he just, he's staring, you know, does him and Locke, you know, their eyes meet for just a second and there's no hesitation to just kick that car and send him down the cliff. This was the last movie that I thought Roger Moore was kind of of an, of an appropriate age to still be playing James Bond. Yeah. Uh, every other movie he seemed just a little too old for me. And, and he even acknowledges, or they acknowledge, that he's getting older in this one because when DB goes to sleep with him, he turns her down purely based on age. Even yeah. though he's of age to sleep with him, you know the age difference is too much for him to reconcile, and he sends her away. And uh, yeah, and what you would get—sorry to interrupt as well—but what you would right. get when when he's with Fiona Fullerton in the next one, even though she's clearly much older than BB, you're starting to get into icky territory. <laughs> yeah. But but I, I, I like I said, he's still in this one. Physically, Roger Moore still seemed trim enough to play Bond. Yeah, uh, he still he still had that vitality. He did have a little bit of seriousness when he needed to, like you're saying in that scene. Uh, it, it didn't seem to to go into that total character that he came 
that that kept building after this. And and I, what I do like also is that this is after Moonraker, which literally you took James Bond to outer space. You had to tone it down a little bit in the next one. You know, you couldn't try and play a can you top this after that. And so we get back to a more, you know, we, we get basically an adaption of a pair of of, sto- of short stories that are featured in the collection for your eyes only. Uh, Melina Havelock is, um, an, an, a, you know, the her care. What's her character's name? I think it's Judy Havelock in the because she's she's uh, English and not uh, Greek in the uh, in the short story, and then Resikio, which deals with um, Christos and Col- and Columbo and all them. Uh, so you, you're getting back again to Fleming a little bit, which helps as well. And and I think the script is helped too because the script is mostly serious. There's a couple of gags in here. The one I always think of is with the bobsled, where they all keep tapping each other on the shoulder to look behind them. Yeah. Like, in the chase, and um, and and there's of course the whole bit with uh, with Molina's car, the the Citroen, which I which was done specifically to show that you didn't need a super fast supercar to do a good car chase, but it's still funny to have a you know a uh, a bright lemon yellow two CV mm. in the James Bond car chase, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's for your eyes only. Is an interesting film. Yeah, it and, really is. I can't believe we've been talking about it this long, and it you know it's going to be me instead of Mr. G.I. Joe here, uh, Luke Giaconetti, <laughs> that's going to point out that uh, you know there there have been precious few um, comic book adaptations of Bond films, but this is actually one of them, and the adaptation of this one was written by uh, Larry Hama. Yeah, I was I I, I had the window open. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know what? I just uh, I just spotted my uh, my million dollar making uh, lawsuit here. It was only a two issue adaptation. Right here on the cover is a great big blurb that says a shattering conclusion you will never forget. I have completely forgotten how that ends. So you know, I ought to be able to sue and get my money. It was a two-issue miniseries, but it was also a Marvel Super Special magazine, yep. which had it all as one, which and I yep. believe came out before the two-issue miniseries. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And, and what later- I can't believe is it's it's Howard Chaykin, and then it's completely sabotaged by Vinnie Coletta. <laughs> How do you let uh, that happen? You know. But he, he sabotaged so much. Is that it was then um, issued in a, uh, a paperback. Which I picked up uh, a couple of years ago at my uh, my infamous local used bookstore, which I find everything at. And the paperback is pretty good, except that you can tell there were certain scenes that the panels were laid out next to each other that they've now been chopped and rearranged. Right. So it's like things kind of happen, and then there's like a pick carriage return before they continue happening. But it's it's actually pretty good. The it's yeah. it's mostly it's mostly accurate to the story. There's a few scenes that are cut down. The, the ski chase scene is almost completely eliminated. It's much much less silly than it is in the in the in the book, and or excuse me in the film. And then the the sequence with the with the hockey team where the hockey team's trying to kill him on the ice is shortened a good bit. But the rest of it's pretty much all there. The scene that uh, that always stands out to my memory is the scene where her parents get gunned down on the boat. That that one was always a, a really good one. And the, the other one that's always interesting is the underwater scenes in this are filmed on a soundstage because um, uh, Carol Boquette claimed that she had a, a, pre, a condition that she could not film underwater, an inner ear condition, I believe, is what she said. So if you look, they any scene that Melina Havelock is in underwater is faked 
And 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 it, it on TV you don't really notice it. You watch it on DVD, it's pretty clear that they're on a soundstage with bubbles and a wind machine. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Julian Glover's in this one. Yes, he is, and almost unrecognizable Julian Glover as Cristiano. Almost unrecognizable Julian Glover, yeah. From uh, he's Admiral Ozel, isn't he? Yeah. Is he Maybe. Admiral Ozel? And he's Donovan in Last Crusade. So there's your Spielberg, yeah. Lucas connection for this one. It, uh, uh, I, I, I personally don't have a great deal about Octopus and A View to a Kill. They're the few Bond movies that I don't really have much to say about. I think Roger Moore looks exceptionally good for somebody in his 50s, <laughs> but it's at the point now where he really shouldn't have been playing James Bond. I Octopus look at is... View to a Kill as... View to a Kill, to me, is kind of the... Um, the crystal skull of the the roger moore ones because it's not that it's especially bad is that the poor guy was just he was honestly he was too old to be doing it it hurts the movie but you feel bad saying that criticism even though it's valid because i mean everybody ages you know so it wasn't his fault but what's funny to me and my probably my biggest memory of that movie and it was the impression i walked away with after going and seeing it in the theater um as a teen was uh i remember the video because they played the video for this like every two minutes on on mtv you know it was just it was the hot thing that year and in the video is the scene where um i'm pretty sure it's grace jones yeah, is kicking him. the shit out of him on top of the Eiffel Tower and almost throws him over just with a fishing pole. Right. And I remember just looking at that and going, "Oh, don't don't kick Grandpa, you know? Just, <laughs> you know he, he, he's a, he's an old guy, you know? Don't don't be doing that, you know? That's not right." And well, I felt the same way walking out of the theater at the end of that movie. That you know, you know, it's it's not bad. The score is great. Lots of action. Great villain in uh, in Christopher Walken. I still think uh, Grace Jones is one of the creepiest things I've ever seen in my entire life. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's Grandpa running. I, you know, it gives me the same feeling I get watching DeForest Kelly in Star Trek Five. It's like Jesus, somebody make that guy go sit down before he breaks a hip. You know. <laughs> think about. See, I'm I. I really like a View to a Kill, as you might have guessed. But yeah, I do too. Real quick about Octopus. One of the things I, I mentioned when we were talking about Man with the Golden Gun that I would mention something about Maud Adams when we got the Octopus. Now, in the original, uh, you know, the original ideas for casting for Octopussy, they wanted an Indian actress to play Octopussy because the character was supposed to be Indian. When they ended up with Maud Adams, they, that was when the rewrite happened to have her be English, but you know, in in India, in the colonial, her parents were there in the colonial days. The original, who, and here's just, here's another Star Trek connection. You know who uh, was originally strongly considered was Pierce's Kambata. <laughs> now think about Octopussy with Pierce's Kambata in that role instead of Maude Adams, and I think you get a very different type of movie. You know, and I think a, I would have liked it more. Yeah, a really, really exotic, very beautiful uh, yeah. girl. You yeah. know, instead of Maude Adams, who to me always, I mean, I like the character of Octopussy, and and but Maude Adams does. I don't really buy her in the role. You know. Is that the one where Bonds, like they set him free or something? It's almost like a scene out of like the most dangerous game or something. And he yes. comes across that that uh, tiger and goes, "Sit." <laughs> yes, I hate that. That is the stupidest that, moment. That's, that's a, over here. There was a, a dog trainer called Barbara Woodhouse who became very famous 
because she could train dogs. Apparently, that was the quality <laughs> that was required to become famous. And um, her shtick was she went star and did that thing with the hand, and the dog would obey her. And it was a riff on that. And it's another thing that just dates the film. Yeah. Right, to me, he starts in a horse's ass and ends up in a clown outfit. And yeah, that, that sums it up. I mean, that's all I can remember about that movie, and that was another one that was on HBO constantly. And it's—I mean, if that's what I take away from that movie, then it, it can't be that great of a of a Bond film. I'm thinking. No. I like because uh, Octopussy was released virtually simultaneously with Never Say Never Again. Right. Yeah. And I remember I saw them both in the theater, like back to back, like one on a Friday night and the other on a Saturday night. And uh, I have to tell you, I. I Thought Never Say Never Again was superior to it. Yeah, but yeah, Octopus, it is. But he did outgross it, though. Octop- of, of the head-to-head, Octopussy actually won that. Somewhere yeah, I still fun. have my issue of, uh, of, I'm pretty sure it's Starlog Magazine, where it's got the two Bonds standing almost back-to-back from the two. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's. Uh, I almost said it was photoshopped. You know, it's not photoshopped, because it <laughs> wasn't even a gleam in anybody's eye. But you know what I mean. It's a doctored photo. But right. it looks great. I mean, it really does look like they're both standing side by side. It's really cool. Well, they, they I'm say getting really in trouble. Was, in, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say they, they say there really was no competition between the two of them, and that they actually were pretty good friends. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've heard that Warren too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, uh, yes, uh, I've, I've heard that as well. That you know, it wasn't a competition because to them, it was it was a role that they were playing. You know. I think we fans associate more of a rivalry than there ever was. Mm-hmm. And the um, you know, th- interesting thing about Octopus to me is, first off, again, we get a few bits more from actual um, um, Fleming because the whole sequence at the at the auction at Sotheby's is straight out of the property of a lady. And yeah. in fact, they make reference to that when the, the title of the auction for the Fabergé egg is the property of a lady. And um, Octopussy, the short story Octopussy, forms Octopussy's backstory. We don't get the actual story, but she refers to it. And I really like the exotic locale. I like that all the all the shooting in India and all the uh, locations and the uh, the castles and stuff that they shoot at. I think that was really neat. And I think Louis Jordan did a pretty good job as Kamal Khan. And his, his henchman is Gobinda. And I, he's kind of just a like an Indian update of Odd Job, but he's still. Yeah. You know, I like him in there. Octopussy to me falls apart because it's it's over long. It it needs to have a, a little tighter cut, and I, I think it'd be it'd be you know a fine as an entertaining movie. There's a lot of jokes in it. Besides the sit, there's also uh, he does the tar- the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan. Yeah. Again, that that's a cut. That needs to be a cut. You know. Um, but, you know, I think we get some good things. That, right at the beginning, uh, 009 being hunted by Mishka and Grishka, the two twins who are the who are the knife throwers in the circus. Uh, I think that, and he crashes into the embassy. I think that's a really well done scene. I think the bit at the in the the other bit in the pre credit sequence with the with the pocket jet, I think is really is is a lot of fun. The the chase through the streets when VJ is driving the the golf cart basically yeah when he just I like that and he throws all the money to, and that's how they stop Gobinda they all the people rush the street to grab the money also has one of my favorite gag lines of all time when one of Gobinda's henchmen jumps on him and stabs him in the chest <laughs> and it's, it's the stack of rupees he goes well thank God for hard currency <laughs> I love that line <laughs> the best thing about Octopussy for me is Stephen Burkoff. Yeah, <laughs> gloriously over the top. Yeah, a lightning strike. Oh, yeah, I love Stephen Burkoff. But uh, 
and and I, I sent this uh, picture to the group here. Um, James Brolin actually did a screen test as James Bond, and except for oh, the Pat Sage picture, looks pretty good, I think. Yeah, you the know. picture looks fine. Can he pull off the British accent? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know James Brolin. I, I so I can't ask him. I don't know. To me, it looks that looks like a still from uh, Fantasy Island. To me, I just <laughs> but the, the white suit doesn't help, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now um, I'm not on board with him. Bruce uh, Bower and Jeremy Bullock are both in it as well. So there's another Empire Strikes Back connection. Yeah. And um, and and what also neat is we do get to see Q out in the field, which yes. uh, we seen yet at this point where Q actually takes part in the action which I thought was which, real. which has the other best line in the film um, when they're escaping in the hot air balloon and Bond says to Q are you sure you can work this and he says it operates off hot air and Bond goes oh so you can which is <laughs> is very funny the uh, the other one is when he says to VJ he goes VJ goes oh do you think uh, Commander Bond will be okay he's like he's in an island full of women I think he'll be just fine <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to surface till morning <laughs> Um, is that it on Roger Moore? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about A View to a Kill. So okay. you guys can probably go make a sandwich, because I'm going to rant for a while here. <laughs> uh, like I said, I was introduced to A View to a Kill from the end of it, which is really is the best part. Uh, to me, the last half hour from when they arrive at the mine until the, the end of the film just is gangbusters. Go, go, go. And I, I, I really like it. I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s. I'm not going to you know deny that. I was born in 1980. So having Christopher Walken and Grace Jones and Tanya Roberts in a, uh, a James Bond movie just to me is, is like a perfect zeitgeist, and I, I love that it's a re- that's a reworking of Goldfinger with a liberal dose of Superman the movie thrown in there. Um, I, I love Christopher Walken uh, as Max Zorin. I think that his he was chosen because he was a quirky bad he could be a quirky bad guy, you know. And this is coming off of having done The Deer Hunter and Dogs of War. So, you know, he's got some acting jobs. You know, he's Academy Award winning actor. And his the way he plays Zoran as a, as a true psychopath is great. I love that when Zoran, you know, Walken does his little, <laughs> his little you know, kind of yuppie laugh. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a yuppie as, as a supervillain. Is it more 1985 than that, a yuppie as a supervillain? But when he <laughs>, laughs at the idea of murdering someone. When after he shoots the um, he shoots the uh, the head, oh, it's it's um, oh, I'm drawing blank on Dan- Daniel Benzali's character. He's the head uh, geologist or something for the state of California. When he shoots him in his office, and then he looks at Bond and he says something. He goes, "You amuse me, Mister Bond." It's you know it's it's all just it's fun and games for him because he's because he's fucking insane. And you, <laughs> you know. And you add Grace Jones onto that. I, I think she's. I think Grace Jones has. I, I know she's kind of freaky looking, but I think she's got a great look as a unique looking character as Mayday. As and, an alien, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I love the bit when she and uh, she and Zoran are doing their sparring, and it turns into their kind of sexual encounter. But then Scarpine calls him, and and he's got to leave, and she rolls off him, and she rolls her eyes at the camera in sexual frustration. I love that little, just that little character bit. I don't know. I, I remember seeing that in the theater and thinking, oh, dude, you know, you're supposed to be selling, like, popcorn or hot dogs and, and <laughs> you know, goobers and stuff. Who's going to want to eat anything after watching that, you know? It's just nasty. I really like Patrick Mackney in it. I think it's funny that we got uh, John Steed and James Bond on camera. Yeah. And I, they... I didn't like the way they portrayed him, though. They, 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 they didn't give him the respect I thought he deserved. 
Well, apparently, uh, from what I understand, is that um, is that Roger Moore would rib him about that on set. You know, would would uh, because you know they were in costume, and so Mackney's wearing the uh, you know the, the the driver's costume, the chauffeur's costume, and mm-hmm. he would rib him all the time on set. Apparently, <laughs> because they were good friends, also. Uh, I think they um, they had, they were were they both on the Persuaders? No, ooh, I don't remember if Patrick McNeedy a guest spot on the Persuaders. I know that um, that when Rod when Sir Roger was doing uh, the Saint, um, Avengers was was shooting near it, so they they were friends and contemporaries. Uh, but you know, it's it it doesn't matter. Uh, but it's it's just I just really enjoy the film. Like I said, from the very beginning, I think that also it's really helped by. Um, by John Barry's score, because the score has a really kind of dark undertone t- to it. You know, everybody talks about the the skiing sequence in the pre-credit. They talk about the Beach Boys in there, and and I could live. I I find it funny, but I could live without it. But the music to listen to is not the Beach Boys. It's the Barry stuff. I mean, that is really a really well composed bit of action music. And then the uh, go- the track is called Golden Gate Fight. It's when they're on the Golden Gate Bridge and they're having you know, Zoran fighting. I really love that piece of music. I think that helps that scene out a lot. And you know, I'm a fan, so I'm 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 prone to gush. But I really enjoy *A Beautiful Kill*. Is Roger Moore too old? Yeah, but he gives it his best. Oh yeah, I, yeah. A, he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't slack. Yeah. Had had that been Dalton's first film, had *A Beautiful Kill* been Timothy Dalton's first film, I think public opinion on it would be vastly different. Mm-hmm. I, as a film, it, it's quite good. I think Rod, uh, Sir Roger's a little too long in the tooth, but everything else I think really works very well in that film. I think, see, my problem with these two is the Indiana Jones films were doing it better at this point. Right. And, and that's a valid that's a valid criticism. And Spielberg always said that the Indiana Jones films were his attempt, his uh, chance to do a James Bond movie. I would like to see somebody very clever with film editing and computers and things like that do a mashup of A View to a Kill and Rise of the Planet of the Apes because they both climax on the same bridge I think that would be awesome <laughs> I'd have Kirk and Spot walking across it yeah that would work too <laughs> the, the other interesting thing about A View to a Kill was, uh, was a change of kind of a changing of the guard a kind of a last hurrah for not just Roger Moore but also Lois Maxwell yeah was Lois yeah. last turn as Miss Moneypenny? Now she was way too damn old to be playing Miss Moneypenny. Yeah. And uh, and what was interesting is that you know we got um, oh, Robert Brown had been playing M for a couple of years, um, and and he had previously played um, not he played the Prime Minister or something earlier on. Yeah, you know I was just looking at this too. He was like an admiral or something, like Admiral what was it like archway or something like damn it i was i just had that window open too and i closed it but yeah you're right the thing i was looking at said that uh it was never made entirely clear whether he was supposed to be the same m or if he was just a successor into that role right because in in for your eyes only after bernard lee bernard lee died right as for your eyes only was starting Mm -hmm. um uh, I can't. I don't remember the name of the actor, but he's playing Sir Frederick Gray. He's playing the Minister of Defense. It's the one who gives Bond his briefing in M's office, and they say that M is on holiday. And then we come back in Octopussy, and Robert Brown is playing M, and then he and he continues to play him for the rest of the pre-Brosman films. Right. See, it makes more sense that M is a job title 
Right. Then it does that James Bond 007 is a job title. I, I don't, would think I don't so. like that theory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it would explain why M's now a woman. Yeah, because isn't Q... Um, Q is just short for quartermaster, right? Well, yeah. they always uh, call it the Q branch. Right. Yeah, but nobody else awesome. has played Q yet. Well, well no, no, John yet. Cleese became Q. Yeah, John Cleese became Q in Die Another Day. He wasn't referred to as Q. I thought he was in Die Another Day. Even in the credits, he's still called R. Oh. Hmm. Okay. I don't know oh. whether that would respect to Desmond Llewellyn, who had just passed away. Yeah, that was something I, I wanted to, to talk about, and it kind of surprised me that we got all the way to where we're at and, and never brought up Desmond Llewellyn, but uh, I, I thought the world of him. I thought he was really, really great. I used to. That was one of the things I used to look forward to the most as a kid with each successive Bond movie was the cue sequence of the movie and, and seeing him and what new gadgets and things and, and what witty barbs they would trade back and forth and all that. And uh, I, I miss him immensely. And he was yeah. brilliant in the last couple of Roger Moore ones where they actually start giving him something to do. Right, yeah. Being an octopus, he gets to go out in the field and him and VJ are Bond's allies in the field for the second half of the movie. Yeah. 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 And, and then, uh, I, I, I tell you what, I would be totally if if his if his estate would clear it and they could really pull it off and make it absolutely believable, I would be totally comfortable with them doing the whole computer thing and bringing him into the Craig movies. I think that would be really cool if they if they could pull it off. What do you guys think about that? Uh, I see. I'm not a big fan of that simply because the actor's not here to give his permission. If he would give his, if he'd give his permission for it, I'm down with it. I mean, what about the family? You know, like if his estate oh, would... I'm still unsure because he's not here to say it. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah it's I, like I, all I, those, all those, all those commercials we saw in the '80s of dead actors advertising coke. Yeah. And it's like right. the family. I understand what you're decision. saying with the moral implications of doing that, but even from a technical point of view, even as far as CGI has gone now, I don't think they could take that character and blend him in and do justice to the scene that Q is going to have to do there because he's got to, he's got to quip with Bond a little bit. And I don't think you can get that, that comic timing down with TGI. I, I think eventually one day they will get to that point though. I, I and think then I would definitely I'm, I'm get gonna, there. I'm going to completely contradict what I have to say. And I would love new episodes of Star Trek then when they can do that. Yeah. Well, I tell you, you know, I mean, it, it could be as simple a thing as, you know, Bond's in the Q department talking to, you know, one of the technicians or something, and, and the guy looks up at a, you know, up, up at an upper level, you know, office window or something and, and gets like a thumbs up from, from Q behind glass in his office or something. So you could fake that with computers. And I just think, I would, I just think it would be a nice nod to, Desmond Llewellyn, I, because I, I, again, I just, I just missed the guy. I, I loved him in that role. I thought he was awesome. And, and uh, I think it's, it's very, um, it ends up being retroactively uh, very ironic that um, his last lines that he says in uh, "The World Is Not Enough" is, uh, is, is him giving almost a paternal goodbye to Bond. He's really? Because they'll pay attention. 007. I've over the years I've tried to teach you two things. The first, never let him see you bleed. And the second, always have an escape route. And he gets his big exit with the floor going down. I always thought that was, you know, retroactively very appropriate. Mm-hmm. 
That's that's cool. So he does actually get a send-off, even though it was inadvertent. He gets a send-off because he was going to, they were going to hand it off to John Cleese anyway. But, you know, it just, it just, you know, unfortunately worked out that, uh, you know, Mr. Llewellyn would die in, in a car accident of all things. When you're that old, you shouldn't die in a car accident. No. Oh, is that how he died? I didn't yeah, know that. He, yeah. he died in a car crash. And, a and but, but he had his, his big, you know, he had his big finale. He had his little send-off, which is more than, you know, more than Bernard Lee or Lois Maxwell or anybody else got. So I thought, but, you know, for someone of the stature of Desmond Llewellyn, who interacted with all of the original Bonds, right? I think that is, was very touching. In, in retrospect. And, I, and actually, on the VHS copy, the commercial copy of The World is Not Enough, there is a tribute to Desmond Llewellyn before the film where they play Nobody Does It Better, and it's all just clips, some of his best clips of saying, don't mm-hmm. touch that, you know? And, <laughs> and it ends with the, uh, you know, always leave, an, always leave yourself an escape route. Even though it horribly, horribly, horribly dates the movie... I love the part in, um, I'm pretty sure it's Living Daylight. Yeah, it has to be Living Daylights, where uh, uh, where he's touring Bond through the Q-Labs, and they stop at the guy that's got the giant radio on his shoulder, and he says, it's something we're working on for the Americans. It's called a ghetto blaster. And then it just blows this shit up. I just, I, it's so cheesy and incredibly dated, but I love that scene. It just It cracks me up every time I see it. Because just the enthusiasm in his voice, and you know, hearing this, you know, very staid elderly British man saying "ghetto blaster" just cracks me up every time. It's hilarious. And uh, I and I love the bit in that also when uh, he's got he's giving him the keychain. Yeah. He goes. Uh, he goes. Well, what what do I? <laughs> yeah, Bond puts it. He sticks it right to his face mask. I love that. There he goes. What's the? Uh, he goes. Uh, well, it, it's been personalized uh, for a tune just for you. He's like, well, what do I do to find it? You'll love this. A wolf whistle. Wolf whistle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like you say he delivers the line with so much relish. Yes. Llewellyn is great, and 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 you know he only and he only we get a, a few minutes in a movie in most movies, and he would you know you and you knew he was coming. And and it would always be the um, you know the now pay attention 007, and I never joke about my work, and, but you were waiting for them because they were great every time he did it, <laughs> and uh, and oh, and I always um, uh, the whole bit with him and Little Nelly and you'll only live twice is probably my favorite part of you only live twice, uh, you know. And Bond reports back, Little Nelly defended her honor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, little Little Nelly's brilliant. I love Little Nelly. Um, well, all right, we're approaching, or oh, we've gone over the three-hour mark, just talking about uh, the first two Bonds. Well, three, if you count Lazenberg. Do you want to wrap this up, and we'll talk about um, Timothy Dalton, Daniel Craig, and Pierce Brosnan another time? Absolutely. Agreed. I'll, I'll look forward to it. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining and indulging us on this, because this was quite a spur-of-the-moment thing, wasn't it, Paul? You and oh, I yeah, were discussing this... it. I said, Luke's a big James Bond fan. Let's rope him in. None of us had a Skype recorder, so Scott was generous enough to say, oh, I'll record it then. So, <laughs> this, all, this all started as our excuse just to get together and talk. Just to get together and, and, and gas. And boy, Luke, you, you really brought it to this with your knowledge. I, I'm, I'm, I couldn't be more impressed. Well, uh, I, I, I would love to do a sequel. I will say that um, the we yeah the, the, there will be an episode 1.5 where I talk about a view to a kill for three hours if anyone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, co- commentary monthly Monday, dude. 
That was the smoothest way I've ever heard anybody say, damn, dude, you never shut the hell up. It's the truth, though. It is the truth, though. (laughs) Uh, I want to thank the the three of you for joining me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you all. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I don't know where this is going to go up or when this goes up, but let us know what you think about it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Excellent. I've got to hand it to you, Q. Quite ingenious. Right. Now, pay attention, 007. I want you to take great care of this equipment. Q, have I ever let you down? Frequently. Morning, Q. Morning, 007. This way, please. Jack, to see you're joking. I never joke about my work, 007. What a wonderful surprise. Well, for me, too. Do please try and return some of this equipment in pristine order. Don't touch that! It's my lunch. If it hadn't been for Q Branch, you'd have been dead long ago. But of course. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. That's putting it mildly, 007. Balls, Q. Bolus, 007. Somebody seems to have stuck a knife in my wallet. They missed you. What a pity. Everything for a man on holiday. Explosive alarm clock. Guaranteed never to wake up anybody who uses it. Dentonite toothpaste. The latest in plastic explosive. Quite frankly, you're going to need my help. My God, what's Bond doing? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. Morning, Q. Sorry about the leg. Skiing? Will you need collision coverage? Yes. Fire? Probably. Property destruction? Definitely. Personal injury? I hope not, but accidents do happen. They frequently do with you. I need any other protection? Only from these W7, unless you bring that car back in pristine order. Q's not gonna like this. Now, pay attention, 007. I've always tried to teach you two things. First, never let them see you bleed. And the second? Always have an escape plan. You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. 
It's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com, please be aware that if you use the Amazon.com link located on our website, www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com, 2 True Freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase. There is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this. All proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite 2 True Freaks affiliated podcasts rolling, and it really helps us out. So please... Use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. <laughs> visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. 2 True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email 2TrueFreaks directly at 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find 2TrueFreaks on Facebook. Just search for 2TrueFreaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook, too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. tweeted while we were doing this i said just giving some mad props to at sir roger moore on the two true freaks podcast <laughs> yeah i've got a lot of time for roger moore his unicef stuff that he's done since he stopped being bond as far as i'm concerned he is a guy who's put his money where his mouth is essentially yeah. he's devoted all of his time to working for unicef since he stopped being james bond so props to the guy that's what, what he get knighted uh, yes for his services you... to unicef oh have okay. you seen him in uh Campbell run where he plays like kind of the parody of himself. Yeah, yeah I like the I love that. Oh my god, I can't believe that uh now that you mention that, I totally forgot that he played Clouseau at the very end of uh Trail of the Pink Panther when they find Clouseau. Yeah. Um it's him. He's he's had himself cosmetically altered to look like Roger Moore cuz Moore <laughs> was still Bond at the time. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. I mean, what's what's like I said? What's funny? I'm I'm you know you guys well you guys may or may not know I'm I'm real big into Twitter and and I follow uh, Sir Roger on there and all of his tweets are all about UNICEF and the different things that they're doing to raise funds for it and yeah. so I agree. I mean I that's a guy really again putting his his fame to to good use and for a, right. a charity that's you know does good work. What's He's got to be in his mid eighties about now too. Yeah. yeah. 
I tell you what, if I answered the doorbell on October 31st and it was Roger Moore trick-or-treating for UNICEF, I'd totally give him like a roll of quarters or something. <laughs> You're generous, man. <laughs> this was a lot of fun, though. Remind me when we when we reconvene to do more of this that one of the things I really wanted to, to bring to the table to this, I don't know if any of you guys ever read it, but uh, right around the time of the Dalton films, uh, Mike Grell did a James Bond prestige format mini for, I think it was Eclipse Comics called Permission to Die. Did you guys ever read that? I've not read any of the Bond comics. I want to. Really, really. It's the only one I've ever read beyond, you know, the comic book adaptations like... uh, Dark Horse did a couple with Paul Delacy as well. Yeah. What was the... um, um... There was there was two the two dark horse ones though I forget what they were now at the top of my head. yeah I've, I've I've seen them around I've never read any of them but this this one that came out in it was like eighty nine I think um, by Mike Grell and it was just I mean it's it's Grell at the top of his game it was great it was really is that one permission stuff. to die permission to die yep clips that's right yeah Maybe it's can, really uh... really good. I would totally be down for that. Absolutely. Maybe get it, you know, put them out at about the same time. I would totally be down for that because I haven't reread it since it came out. So, you know, I could be talking out my ass. Maybe it hasn't held up. But yeah. at the time it came out, I remember just loving it and thinking it was just phenomenal. And he's he doing the, uh, the showcase adaptation of Dr. No. Yeah, there was that. There was the adaptation of um, uh, well, according Eyes to the, Only, there, and then there was one. Well, they did. Yeah, I want to say it was Eclipse. Well. That did they do an Octopussy? They did. Ar- Marvel did Octopussy as well. Then yeah, Eclipse did. did. Eclipse did License to Kill, and License did, to Kill. Yeah. Now, the one I remember was from uh, Dark Horse was Serpent's Tooth, which was Doug Mensch and Paul Galassi. Yeah, yeah I think I had a CBR of that. And really good, actually. Is it? I, I remember it being good, but I haven't read it literally in 20 years. See, I used to like Paul Galassi, but I, as we were talking, I, I was looking up uh, James Bond comics just to see what else was out there that I might not be aware of. And I saw the covers to that, and I thought, ew, that's ugly, Galassi. Because Galassi's one of those guys, I used to love him, and but all of his modern stuff, I look at it and go, I don't know. His, his people look like Twizzlers or something. They all look funny. <laughs> It's like he did that that Batman prestige there a few years ago, um, Outlaws, and it was just fucking horrible. I mean, it, it's it was hard to believe it was even Paul Gillespie anymore. It, it was really bad. But, oh yeah, I'm just looking at that. What you've mentioned, James Bond comics on Wikipedia. Oh, I'd love to read the Mike Grell ones. That one's I'm telling you, dude, it's great. It's really really good because it, it's it's very much um, basically imagine. The, the present day bonds like the Craig bonds, but with Dalton playing that role, you know, but, but much more gritty, much more serious. And, and that's pretty much what that was. It was, it was a very, I mean, you know, here, you know, with me having never really read any of the, uh, of the original books, it felt like it was more, you know, faithful to, from everything I've heard that those books were like, it was a, supposed to be much more in line with, um, with the novels rather than the movies. And it really had that feel. It was much more serious. It wasn't jokey like the Moore stuff or anything like that. And Bond's a badass. I mean, he's an ass kicker in it, so it's pretty good. Yeah, and that I could I could see that from Grell, you know? Yeah. Whether it gets Dominic Fortune and stuff like that. I could right, really yeah. a good Bond writer. 
And this is your Uncle Don saying good night. Good night, little kids. Good night. We're off? Good. Well, that ought to hold the little bastards.